That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I spoke with University of Oregon Athletic Director Rob Mullins this morning. Wide-ranging interview. I wrote it. You can read You can read all about it at johnconzano.com. I'll talk about that on today's show. Conversation about the Pac-12, about media rights, frankly about non-conference football scheduling, really challenging for the University of Oregon and maybe some others, uh, particularly on the West Coast to try to get Power 5 conference opponents to visit their stadium. And, oh, here comes the expanded college football playoff. How will that factor in things? Rob Mullins, one-on-one, talked to him this morning on the telephone for a while and wrote about it, johnconzano.com. If you subscribe, you got it in real time. It showed up in real time in your email inbox. I want to start today's show, though, with conspiracy theories. The Miami Heat... Are your Eastern Conference champions defeating the Boston Celtics uh, over the weekend, right? You give it a chance, I guess over the three-day weekend. A lot of people up in arms over what they perceive to be a conspiracy. Now, you know if you listen to this show that I love a conspiracy theory as much as the next person. Whether it is the lunar landing or whether it is the Freemasons, did they sink the Titanic, whether it is JFK and the Grassy Knoll. Um, We had uh, Bruce Barnum's father, Bud Barnum, on this show a few years ago. And it was one of these things where Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach, is coming in studio to do an interview. And he brings an entourage. Okay, He shows up with an entourage. It's kind of Bruce Barnum-like. No, it's not. He's not an entourage guy. But he shows up with an entourage, including his father, Bud. Now, Bud is a fascinating story. Like, for those of you out there that don't know, Bud Barnum was in the United States Coast Guard and was part of the Honor Guard that was instructed to stay with the casket and the body of President Kennedy in November 1963. The Grassy Knoll, Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby eventually, all of that, you know, spawned a lot of conspiracy theory. Maybe the CIA's role, Bay of Pigs, Castro. I mean, there's just so much, and there's so many books written about it, movies made about it for people who don't know. Um, you know, you got, like, On the Trail of the Assassins. You've got the JFK movie with Oliver Stone. Uh, you have, like, I, I heard, I saw somewhere that there were a 1,000 documentaries that were made about uh you know jfk and what happened with with uh you know kennedy and the cia and whatnot and and was oswald the only shooter well we had bud barnum in studio and he was a pallbearer essentially for president kennedy carried his body and the casket 
through uh, that entire process, whether from from the beginning where it started at you know Air Force One arriving in Dallas and and Andrews you know and taking his body to Andrews Air Force Base, and then you know Bud Barnum and the other pallbearers were told to stay with the casket. And as the story goes. You know, we again, Bruce Barnum in studio, Portland State coach. We stopped talking about football almost immediately. We started talking to Bud about JFK and conspiracy theories. But the story goes that Bud Barnum and the other members of the Honor Guard were sequestered at gunpoint by individuals. Maybe it was the CIA. Maybe it was the Secret Service. Maybe it was um, someone else. We don't know. They don't know. But they were put in a locked room for 45 minutes, and there was arguing outside the door. Like, this is fact. This isn't like some wild Mel Gibson conspiracy theory movie. This happened. And for 45 minutes, they were trying to hear, like, what the heck is going on out there? They're all arguing. And this is at Andrews Air Force Base. And the members of the Honor Guard are going, you know, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, this isn't part of our training to be locked in a room. but uh, they were eventually let out, and you know nobody knows if it was the CIA or the Secret Service that was at odds, or maybe various branches of the military, or you know where they fight, where somebody fighting over who should be allowed in to see the autopsy. But for the better part of an hour, the pallbearers were held captive, away from the body of the president, while something important was settled outside the door. Now it raises questions, and the other elder Barnum came on the show and talked all about it, and he talked about getting a note from Mrs. Kennedy after the funeral, and and then Bruce Barnum told, you know, told the story of you know going into elementary school to do his book reports and telling the story in his elementary school reports that the pallbearers were sequestered at gunpoint and all this stuff. Uh, the teachers were not happy with it. You can ask Barnum yourself, but it happened. Now, I don't know what your favorite conspiracy theory is. Did NASA fake the lunar landing? Are aliens not only real, but living among us? I saw a Stanford professor who talked about that recently, that there's a high probability that, that aliens have visited Earth and that they're probably still here. And Well, that's interesting to me. Like, I've seen some TV shows about it. Are you one of these people, though, when it comes to sports that believes in conspiracy theories? Like the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics, I opened the show talking about them. Did they... Did, was there a conspiracy at play in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals? Because as Game 7 was approaching on Monday night, I did see people on Sunday and Monday morning talking a lot on social media about the NBA orchestrating a better matchup for the Finals. They basically were, the, the, the conspiracy theorists were saying that the NBA wanted Boston to get to the NBA Finals because it could have one of its big brands in an NBA Finals series against the Denver Nuggets, who, you know, look, Nikola Jokic, uh, Jamal Murray, uh, Mike Malone's team, they probably are the best team in the NBA, maybe playing the best basketball in the NBA right now. But, uh, you know, we can all acknowledge that uh, the Nuggets aren't talked about because they're kind of really good and really boring. Chris Mannix telling uh, Rick Rich Eisen that you know they're just great and there's a, they're, they're not they have no drama. The card the Nuggets can play is nobody talks about us. Nobody, you know, sp- spends airtime discussing us. Column inches 
writing about us because, frankly, the Nuggets aren't very interesting. Like, Nikola Jokic is arguably the best player in the game right now, but he's not someone that does a lot of interviews outside of the NBA-mandated stuff. You're not going to see a lot of profiles on Nikola Jokic. Jamal Murray, great player, not especially interesting. Michael Porter Jr., excellent player, not especially interesting, at least not compared to what we have at the bottom of the playoff bracket, where you've got drama in Los Angeles almost weekly. You've got the Suns. Can they succeed in this first year with Kevin Durant? The Warriors, all their dysfunction this year. The Clippers, can they get it together? The Nuggets' problem is they're not respected. They're just not talked about. People just don't find them as interesting as some of the teams on the bottom half of the bracket. And so as Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals approached, uh, many people who follow the NBA closely noted that Tony Brothers and Scott Foster, two longtime officials, uh, happened to be assigned to Monday's Game 7, two-thirds of the officiating crew. Now, Brothers and Foster worked 10 combined Miami games in the regular season. The Heat had a record of 0-10 in those games. And so some Miami fans who were tuned into that were very worried. They were fretting. They were pointing at it going, look, this is the NBA. They don't want us in the finals. This is what they're doing. You can see it coming from a mile away. Now, maybe some of those Heat fans were forgetting that the Miami Heat basically blew a 3-0 lead and now found themselves back against the wall on the road in a Game 7 against a team that was playing better basketball. Nevertheless, it was going to be the fault of Tony Brothers and Scott Foster if the Miami Heat lost that basketball game. They were 0-10 in games officiated by those two guys. Now, Brothers and Foster also worked nine combined Celtics games this regular season, and Foster was 7-2 and in those games. And so, yes, it fed beautifully into the conspiracy theory uh, that involves NBA officiating. Now, you can blame Tim Donahue. You can blame David Stern. His arrogance did not help, uh, did not install faith from the public. You can blame the prevailing notion that television drives the bus in professional sports, that it would be better for the NBA to have what? Like a Lakers-Celtics NBA Finals? It's a dream matchup from a TV rating standpoint. And maybe the networks that carry the the, uh, events were sitting and rooting for that. But Miami fans were cringing and crying foul before the ball was even tipped on Monday night. And Boston fans, some Boston fans were taking delight, but not as many. And the conspiracy theorists in general were just going, look at this. Look what's happening. Entering the fray, though, came former Major League Baseball crew chief Dale Scott, friend of this show, native of the state of Oregon, University of Oregon grad. Dale Scott started pushing back on social media. Now, I watched this, you know, it was just a tweet at first. He says, you know, this sounds sensational and it's a statistical oddity, but Dale Scott said it's meaningless. Now, Dale Scott's been on this show a number of times. We've talked about officiating. He pushes back. He defends the integrity, the honor of the officials. He'll often point out that officials in professional sports are professionals. They want to get the calls right. They're not really interested in who wins the game. He does all of that. Now, I don't know how much of that you believe. But that's what he advocates for. And so Dale Scott basically pointed out, like, you want an oddity. You want a statistical oddity. Okay, here's one. In the 2004 Major League Baseball season, he worked 14 St. Louis Cardinals regular season games. The Cardinals in those games went 14-0, and undefeated. 
He also drew their National League Division Series against the Dodgers. Cardinals won that one in four games. And, you know, so the Cardinals had to be feeling pretty good with Dale Scott on the field. Or maybe the Cardinals were just really good that season, and Dale Scott happened to be there when they played well. You know, decide what you want there. Because Dale Scott eventually got assigned to the World Series that year, 2004. St. Louis fans were delighted by this. The ones who knew it, I was at that series. I covered that series in St. Louis. I was there. I watched the Red Sox and the Cardinals play those games. And guess what? Boston was dominant. It swept the series for zip. Conspiracy over. Nobody talked about it again. And, in fact, I believe in that series. And I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head because I can remember being there at Bush Stadium in St. Louis watching you know, the fi- Boston get the final out. You know, uh, there was uh, there was a whole bunch of Boston fans who were there to celebrate it because it really was, you know, for in 2004 it was a landmark moment in Red Sox history. I can remember this, the downtown St. Louis area and the area around the ballpark was like, you know, hot dog wrappers blowing down the streets. It was like a Star Trek episode. It was like suddenly everyone in the world was there and then everyone was gone because St. Louis – in that series, I don't even think they led in that World Series. That's how dominant the Boston Red Sox were in that series. And I was staying at the same hotel as the Red Sox. They was there, you know, I was visiting team hotel was right across the street from the stadium. And I remember going back to the hotel and I'm getting on the elevator and the bellman at the elevator had one of those luggage carts, that's giant luggage carts that takes up almost all of the elevator. You have to kind of get onto the elevator and scooch around it. And the luggage cart was filled with beer. He had cases upon cases upon cases of beer on it, and he was taking it up to the top floor for the Red Sox to enjoy. It was their series. Now, you know, I reached out to Dale Scott this morning, and I said, I asked him a question. Maybe you can help me with this. I asked him why he thinks sports fans and the public at large really enjoy conspiracy theories. Like, what is it about a conspiracy theory that, you know, kind of gets your juices going. In sports, we do it a lot. There's a lot of superstition. Maybe it's rooted in that. You know, but I asked Dale Scott, what do you think it's about as an umpire? And Dale Scott goes down a rabbit hole on the subject with me. He said that conspiracy theories are an occupational hazard for pro sports officials. Think about that. An occupational hazard. What does it do? Well, Scott says, look, I get it. Quote, when a team is going bad, it's a lot easier to claim some kind of conspiracy than to praise the other team or blast your own, end quote. Yet for years, the urban myth in the NBA or the NFL or Major League Baseball or the Pac-12 for that matter is that the league is somehow instructing the umpires or the referees or the officials to call games for certain teams, usually big market teams. Because what? They don't want your team in the championship. It'll get low ratings. You know, Denver beat the Lakers in the Western Conference, though. And now Miami beats Boston. Like, the prevailing thought, as I pointed out prior to any of this, was that the league office and Adam Silver wanted the Lakers and the Celtics in the finals. Big markets, big brands, better TV ratings, all of that. Do you believe in sports conspiracies? I lean towards incompetency and maybe just human nature and human error.
being a larger part of it in sports. But I also believe that, you know, I believe that the lunar landing was real. I believe that JFK, there was some wonky stuff that went on behind the scenes. Wouldn't be surprised by anything on that matter. And I tend to believe that Stanford professor who says alien life has reached planet Earth at some point says the probability of it is high. I don't know. Are you an alien? As long as you're a listener to this show, I'm cool with it. Just behave yourself. But I want to throw this out to you as an audience. When I talk about conspiracy theories when it comes to your sports teams or just in general, the Freemasons, did they sink the Titanic? Uh, the manipulation of the stock market, the uh, Adam Silver in the NBA, and, you know, do they want you know large market teams in there, the NFL and Roger Goodell? Is it possible that it's what Dale Scott says it is, that it's a way to scapegoat the officials? It's a way to uh, fill the time that we have to talk with, with something wild and unexpected because, you know, frankly, we don't trust the leagues, do we? I mean, they, they're to blame for some of that, Pac-12 in particular. They're to blame for it. Like, when you don't trust the officiating in the NBA, I go back to Tim Donahue and the words that he shared on the show, but I, I largely go back to human nature. I think officials make mistakes. I think they make bad calls. I don't always necessarily think that it's because – they want an outcome or because the league wants an outcome uh it's hard to argue that you know the sacramento kings didn't get hosed in that lakers kings series but you know i was talking about that with someone today like back in the day like you know lakers kings game seven did the kings get a raw deal yeah they did but that game also went to overtime so if the officials did orchestrate that they did a wonderful job sort of making sure to cover their tracks did they like, I also think, like, some of this is probably just human nature. Like, you know, we all want someone else to blame, not our teams. 503-417-7575 is the number. I want you to weigh in on that. Tell me what you believe when it comes to sports and conspiracy theory. Stephen, where do you stand on all this? And in, in, am I crazy for thinking aliens have visited Earth at some point? Uh, aliens, no. I actually agree with you. I think that uh, probability-wise, <laughs> something from another planet has been here for sure. Um, we can't be the only people out there or, you know, things out there. So I'm with you on aliens. Um, as far as sports and like referees, like, I don't think that referees are fixing games. I don't think that they're in on conspiracies. Now I do think the NBA is definitely rooting for things. Like they would love a Boston versus LA series, but they're not going to go out of their way to make it obvious because people are too aware of it. You, if, it, if nobody was aware of this thing, then maybe I could believe it. But when it's out in the public like this, it's too public of a thing to have the referees changing games and really fixing them right in front of your eyes. We would all notice. And so I don't necessarily believe in the art of fixing games, but I do believe in there's some shady things behind the scenes, right? And they will you know, help feed teams different players or maybe even draft lottery kind of things. Um, this kind of happened in the NHL just a little bit ago. Like I think that this stuff does happen to a lesser extent behind the scenes that they can control, but on the court, on the field, I think it's about as pretty, um, you know, pretty pretty much as natural as it can be. I think that you get bad outcomes or you get human outcomes, and sometimes we look a little too deep. I can't imagine the outcry or the risk if the NBA was actually caught orchestrating uh, an outcome. Now, do officials miss calls? Do they get sucked into the home arena do they, uh, you know, do they find themselves not liking a player? Maybe there's a personal issue. I, I, I have no doubt that, that stuff happens. But I, I, I'm not 
convinced that like Adam Silver was meeting with the officials prior to Game 7 going, hey, here's what we need. Let's go to the phone lines. Mark's in Portland. He's going to lead us off. Mark, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing good. How you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, Steve, Steven's right on. They're not going to do it out in the open, John, but they do it through free agency, but they definitely want Hollywood, the Lakers, Showtime, all the Hollywood the actors there. They definitely want them in the finals. There's a reason why uh, Will Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and uh, Shaq all started their careers in other cities and ended up as Lakers. Why would those other franchises get rid of three of the greatest centers ever? One played with Jerry West, the other played with Magic, and then the Shaq and Kobe show. That's not a coincidence. That's never going to happen in Portland in the, in the system that the NBA has. Free agency is, is what it's about. Uh, you know, I, they're already talking about where I think Lillard's going to join the let's switch teams party, and and uh, we're going to see who goes to Miami and where LeBron's going to end. You know, who he's bringing to LA. It's it's about free agency, and that's yeah. where they control it. And Sacramento uh, with Rick Adelman, that's the only time I I thought the refs fixed the game. It was so ridiculous playing the Lakers. It was so obvious what what they were doing to me. I was watching the game in Vegas with LA fans, and they were going wow. They're rigging the game. I don't know yeah, if you remember that game. It was I very do remember it. Yeah. Game. I remember talking to Mark Cuban about that game years ago. Thank you, Mark, in Portland for that. Um, I think sometimes, too, like, look, it's true. Like, if the league wanted to, you know, play the great equalizer, it could swoop in. And it could make it, uh, they could, you know, they could incentivize free agents to go to small market teams. Like, really easy. The league, The league's owners... By the way, the small market owners in particular could band together and say, look, we would like a policy that allows teams that are signing free agents that are small market teams, let's say the bottom half of the league when it comes to market size, that any uh, any free agent signing that is a free agent that you're taking from a large market team, uh, let's just say that only half of the salary counts against the salary cap. Like they could easily come in and do that that would create sort of an equalizing force in the league, but uh, I don't think that they're interested in that. But is that a conspiracy theory? No, I just think it's greed. I think the large market teams like that, hey, they don't have to do anything but sit back because they're L.A. or because they're Miami or because they're Boston, and they know they're going to get players that you know the small market teams generally aren't going to get. Coming up, uh, we will talk about Oregon Athletic Director Rob Mullins and the challenge of scheduling in today's world in college football. The non-conference TV times and kickoff times and TV networks, they're going to be out tomorrow for the Pac-12 games. We'll talk about what we're expecting. Leave it here. So my father-in-law, many of you know, he's uh, he's living with us uh, right now. He is uh, fresh off the boat from uh, Taiwan. No, he's de- they flew in. They flew in from Taiwan last week, and he's got his feet underneath him. And last night, he uh, came to me, and he said, uh, can you put on a TV show for me? And I said, okay, what do you want to watch? Like, I have no idea what he was watching in Taiwan. Um, You know, he understands English. He also speaks Mandarin. And he, uh, you know, I, I was trying to think, like, does he want me to, find a uh, a uh, drama that is in Mandarin or you know and Anna was preoccupied with the kids and this is a lot of pressure on me okay 77 year old uh, Taiwanese guy 
who is uh, who is uh, basically saying, "Hey, uh, you know, find me a show." So I said to him, "I said, what do you want?" And he says, "He says finally Netflix." And this is kind of how we talk, kind of talk in uh, you know one or two word bursts. And uh, he says Netflix, and I said, "Okay, Netflix." And then I say, uh, "What kind of show do you like?" And he said, "Movie." And I said, "Okay." So I get into the movies, and uh, then he says, uh, "Action movie." And I said, okay. And so I set him up in an easy chair, and I put the uh, volume on the TV up high. And Stephen, action movie for the father-in-law on Netflix. Like, give me a genre. Like, where would your mind, where does your mind go when I start to say that? Uh, I mean, my first thought was just like a like Top Gun or something like that. Okay. <laughs> Anna told me, that's funny you said that. Anna told me that she put on Top Gun Maverick on the plane ride when they were flying back from Taiwan. So we saw that. So I didn't know what to put on, and I ended up with uh, the Tom Hanks movie. Uh, you know, I am the captain now. All that, you know. Yeah, uh, Captain Phillips. Captain no. Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> so we ended up with Captain Phillips. He'd never seen it. I said it's about uh, it's about Tom Hanks. He is the uh, captain of a ship. He gets hijacked by pirates, Somali pirates. And uh, it's true, you know, it's a true story. American cargo ship uh, hijacked, you know. He was in. He was all in. And so the next time I see Anna, which is like 15 minutes later, she's like, uh, what did you end up on? I said, your dad's downstairs. He is uh, watching Captain Phillips. I asked him if he wanted popcorn. He did not. He seems happy as a clam. So he, he ended up with Captain Phillips. I'll take your recommendations. I liked it, too, because it's two hours and 14 minutes. And I thought that was a good chunk of time for a 77-year-old father-in-law to be preoccupied with a Tom Hanks movie. I wasn't going to give him something short because then I was going to have to make another decision. So he watched that one. You could tweet at me at John Canzano BFT if you got another movie recommendation for the father-in-law. But uh, I don't know. We could do a whole genre of Tom Hanks movies. But he says he likes action. Maybe I should get him into, like, the Jason Bourne movies or the Bond, the recent Bond movies. Uh, those are good action movies. Heart-pounding thrillers, stuff like that. But I figured guns, Somali pirates, Tom Hanks could not go wrong with that one. Uh, I wrote today uh, uh, about Rob Mullins, the University of Oregon athletic director. And we talked on the telephone about Oregon. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Mullins, uh, you know, want to read it, it's at johnconzano.com. But I mainly wanted to talk to Mullins about non-conference scheduling. Because tomorrow you're going to get the release, tomorrow mid-morning, of the Pac-12 non-conference TV times and television stations that the first three weeks will be on. Now, we already know that Colorado TCU is on Fox. That is in week one. But we're going to get some of the other games as the, uh, the entities, uh, mainly ESPN, uh, are deciding where they're going to put games. And that creates a domino effect. And then the Pac-12 will release that schedule and we'll soon find out. But we ended up on the subject of the Pac-12 and media rights. And, uh, you know, Rob Mullins, as we talked through this, said a couple things to me that were interesting. First of all, he said to me, you know, he says he's reading me. He says, you have the right sources. You've been spot on. It's good for me to hear that because I, I want to hear from people who are directly involved if I'm not spot on. That's part of being responsible as a journalist. And I know there's a shortage of that out there. There's some people just writing stories saying this could happen or this could happen or this could happen or this could happen. Those are not really stories. Those are just people speculating 
sitting on a bar stool, tickling their navel, you know, whatever, uh, whatever uh, euphemism you want to use there. So uh, Rob Mullen says, hey, you know, your, your sources, you have the right sources, you're talking to the right people, you've been spot on. Now, this is the first time I've talked to Mullins on the record about media rights. Now, I've talked to him other times in passing, how you doing? He's got a son who's a high school senior, he's going off to college. We've talked about that kind of stuff. But this is the first time we kind of drilled down on what is going on with media rights and whatnot. Now, the Pac-12 remains engaged. We all know they're negotiating, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, you've got reports out there. Some bozo reported last week that, you know, the Pac-12 conference is only going to get $20 million a year per school. You know, it, it forces me to have to turn and reach out to sources and say, hey, is this true? Are you still confident that you're going to be in the 31.6 to whatever range when it comes to media rights? And then get their answer and then turn around and decide, do I need to even report this or do I kind of let it go? And I let it go last week. I didn't report it. And then uh, this week you've got CBS Sports, Dennis Dodd reporting the Colorado's in, in these deep discussions with the Big 12 Conference. I think that it's probably more true that Colorado and Utah and everybody else have done their diligence. Uh, I think it, it does not uh, it does not match what I'm hearing from the Pac-12 CEO group itself. It does not match what any athletic director is telling me in the conference. And I, I kind of think Colorado, if I can just speculate here for a moment, I kind of think Colorado and athletic director Rick George, who we've had on this show, are maybe pandering some to the crowd that wants to leave to the Big 12. Bear with me here. Let's just say hypothetically that Coach Prime has expressed to his administration that he believes Colorado could recruit better if it had access to the state of Texas. It wouldn't be an unusual request from Coach Prime. It, it may be that even donors in his circle are leaning on the administration of Colorado going, hey, we want to recruit the state of Texas. Like, maybe that's true, too. I don't know. But if you were Rick George and you were Colorado, maybe you could pacify that crowd by just saying, hey, we're doing our diligence. We're going to do what's best for Colorado. In the end, you know, we're going to explore our options. Uh, Of course, we prefer to be in the Pac-12. But, you know, we're going to explore our options. Now, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just spitballing that because it's one of the theories that's floating around out there for why Colorado is maybe not as uh, aggressively shooting down this report as it has other reports in recent weeks, in recent months, really. Rick George came out and basically just fired a uh, fastball at the same reporter uh, a couple of months ago saying, like, get real. Like, Colorado's not going anywhere. So I kind of think that the restless conference members' narrative, I think the reporters themselves who are putting it out there would acknowledge that, um, and do acknowledge in print, that, eh, you know, Colorado could return to the Pac-12 conference. Well, Colorado could also do a, a cartwheel on, the, on its front lawn. Like, you know, could, could, could. It's not the world that I live in. Uh, but I talked to Rob Mullins about Oregon specifically because Oregon's interesting. Oregon's been quiet, hasn't it? Like, no university president, after Michael Schill leaves for Northwestern, they appoint a provost who then applies for the job and doesn't get it, so then he steps down, so they have another interim president. Like, they haven't really had a presidential face for about seven or eight months. And 
I think it's harmed Oregon to some extent and maybe hurt the Pac-12 a little bit because it's left people thinking, like, Oregon, you know, are they up in the air? Now, I've reported all along that I do not believe Oregon is up in the air, and I have it from the Pac-12 CEO group that Oregon is very committed. I also have a second source saying that Washington and Oregon are committed, and that source is related to the University of Washington. So as I look at the landscape, though, it was really important to me to hear from Oregon at some point. And so I am on the phone this morning with Rob Mullins, wide-ranging one-on-one phone interview. We talk about the future of the Pac-12. We talk about Oregon's brand. We talk about the challenges of scheduling non-conference football games. I'll get to that in a minute. It's fascinating. But Mullins tells me this, quote, The Pac-12 has been very good to the University of Oregon. We've had tremendous success and our brand has grown in strength over the years by any metric. We're excited about the future of the Pac-12, end quote. He tells me, you have the right sources. You've been spot on in your reporting. He says he's reading me. Cool. That's good to hear. But then I ask him, you know, what about the ongoing media rights negotiations? And he says, we've just got to get it done, end quote. It fits with what Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyovkov, like him or not, has said all along. It fits with what uh, Philip Stefano, the chancellor at Colorado, has said. It fits with uh, Oregon State's president and Washington State's president and Arizona's president and Arizona State's president. Everybody's saying the same thing. And I just don't, I don't understand why we're just going in the circle, or maybe I do. Maybe it's just that the void, the vacuum in space needs to be filled with People speculating for the sake of speculating. I don't know. I don't get it. It's not my game. I'm, I'm just uh, you know, involved with it because of my job. So it was interesting to hear from Oregon and interesting to hear that Oregon's in on the Pac-12 conference. I also know that, like, look, it, it would behoove Rob Mullins, given that Oregon doesn't have anywhere to go, to be all in on the Pac-12 once the conference is strong as he could get it. I also think if you're Oregon... The va- things that you value are not necessarily the things that other schools value. Let's be real. Oregon and Oregon State have long existed within 45 miles of each other with different agendas, different revenue models, different goals, different expectations. And I think it was it's on display in this media rights thing with, you know, Oregon and wa- Oregon State and what matters, you know, if you're Oregon, Forget the Big Ten. Forget the SEC. That stuff might matter to fans who just fear that, hey, I don't want to be left behind. I don't want my school to be left behind. Like, fans can get into that stuff. But the truth is, Oregon values access to the college football playoff. Period. End stop. Over. That's it. Oregon's got Phil Knight. He's the great equalizer. They don't need to be in the Big Ten. In fact, I've told you all along, they don't want to be in the Big Ten. And I've got Mullins telling me you're on, you're on, you're spot on. Like this, to me, is not debatable. Like Oregon wants to be in the Pac-12 conference. It's where they belong. They've thrived there. Their brand has thrived there. By any metric, Mullins said, by any metric, you can see that they have had success in the Pac-12. Now, I do think the same goes for Washington. I think to some extent the same goes to Colorado and Utah. I think Oregon State is in a different position. Oregon State would love all the revenue it can get, and it knows that the Big Ten and the SEC and others are not calling. 
So does Washington State. So does Arizona. Uh, likely uh, Arizona State and some other. Like they're not really going to get better deals from other uh, other uh, conferences. So I think you know I I've said it all along. I can't wait for tomorrow because we're going to get some football to talk about with the non-conference schedule. But I think this conference is you know glued together in a way that cannot be undone by anything other than a total implosion of the landscape. And at this point, I think they're, that the Big Ten and the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12 know down deep that there is a vested interest in having a variety of conferences involved. The Big 12 media rights are not more valuable if you add in a couple of Pac-12 schools to the mix. It's just not going to raise the number. It's not going to move the needle enough. It's not going to happen. I don't see it happening. And I think the Pac-12, at least in this cycle, is staying together. Now we're going to talk non-conference scheduling coming up. I'll tell you what Rob Mullen said about trying to get opponents to come to Autzen Stadium. Also, what he said about the future of scheduling in college football. With an expanded playoff, will there be any incentive to play tough non-conference games? More on that coming up. Think about the advantage that Oregon, Washington, Utah, maybe some others would have to be acting like and operating like the Alabama or Georgia or LSU in a reconstituted Pac-10 conference uh, or Pac-12 if you're adding San Diego State and SMU. Just think about that. 503-417-7575. We're going to talk about college football non-conference scheduling. Uh, Rob Mullins and I talked a little bit about the the possibility that the Pac-12 would go to a 10-game conference schedule. They currently play nine. And he pointed out that the Big Ten and the Big 12 and the Pac-12 all play nine Non, you know, nine conference games, which means that leaves you in a given year, depending on who you are, with a uh, five-game home conference schedule or a four-game home conference schedule. So it's five, then four, then five, then four. And he said that the problem in trying to get non-conference uh, games against Power Five schools isn't just that it's hard to get them to come to Eugene, which is a tough place to play. It's not just that the travel cost for teams outside the Pacific time zone becomes a little prohibitive, and it does. You're bringing a team all the way across the country. You're bringing a team from Texas or Michigan or wherever. You know, you start to go, hey, it's just cheaper if we go play somebody else in some other part of the country. Those things are real factors. But another factor is that he said the teams that are on that four-game conference schedule in a given year don't want to play a road game in that year. And he said the problem is, Oregon happens to be on this rotation where it knows that about half of the other Power Five members aren't even available to them in those years because they're playing four conference home games. And they're looking for home games, not road games. They don't want to, they'd love to play Oregon, but they love to play Oregon at home. And so what they've tried to do is try to do home and homes with those schools like Texas Tech and Baylor and Michigan State, Ohio State. They've tried to schedule those in future schedules, and they have. But he also kind of asked him about, you know, would they ever go to a 10-game conference schedule to try to alleviate that? Basically, you only have to play, you only have to schedule two non-conference games, which means they would schedule a Portland State or an Eastern Washington probably every other year, and then they'd maybe play a San Jose State or a Fresno State or a Hawaii every other year. 
And what I'm getting at is I think there will be, with the expanded college football playoff, a real temptation for Power 5 schools to not play each other. One, they don't want to have losses. They want, unless they know that, you know, I'll play if I know I can win it. But they don't want to have losses because those at-large berths are going to be incredibly important when it comes to, uh, you know, grabbing those playoff spots. Automatic qualifier, conference champion getting in in most years. But the Pac-12 would love to have two in in most years and three in in a, in a wild year where they have three teams they think are really good. So I don't, I don't know how often that would happen. But I think with regularity, you could get two in from the Pac-12. And so I think the Pac-12, like, you know, Oregon won't want to go play Michigan or Ohio State or somebody like that in a home-and-home, and, home, and I'll bet you those schools won't want to play it either. So keep an eye on that as, as the conference schedule gets released tomorrow, the non-conference schedule and the TV times and all that's coming out tomorrow. Let's go to the phone lines, 503-417-7575. Pat is in Longview. Pat, what's on your mind? Hi, John. Uh, what was on my mind there was, was the idea that maybe Colorado uh, would want to move to the Big 12 because they could be a bigger dog in the pack, in the Big 12 because of how many teams have left and gone to the southeast than they can immediately in the Pac-12. And yeah. It, go ahead. Yeah. No, you go ahead. And Finish. I'll and also that the alumni and uh, fan base remembers when Colorado was good in the Big 12. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think like some of the Colorado fans probably long for those Big 12 days. But I, I want to talk about today and now for Colorado because that's how the here and now is where Rick George, the athletic director, needs to operate. Think about this. Think about this. If you're Rick George, the AD at Colorado, how many years do you think Deion Sanders is staying at Colorado? Stephen, how many years do you think Coach Prime is staying at Colorado? If you're Rick George, the AD, like, and you're thinking, okay, if he wins and he wins big or good enough, you know, how many years are you going to have him? And if he loses, if it's a dumpster fire, how many years are you going to have him? I think maximum three. I think three is the number. I think one year to kind of figure it out this first year, and then second year win, third year win, he's gone. Or even if he wins in the second year, I think he could be gone as well. I think three maximum is about it out of Dion. Three max. So if you're Rick George in Colorado, and Dion really is whispering, "Hey, if I if I gonna win, if I'm gonna win big, I need to recruit Texas. I need to recruit Florida. Helps me if we're in the Big Twelve. Hell, it helps me more if we're in the SEC." If I'm Rick George in Colorado, I'm going to publicly say things that help that narrative because I don't want Coach Prime to think I'm not supporting him. But simultaneously, I am not making a decision based on Coach Prime's trajectory of three years. I'll give him five at most, you know. So here's Rick George giving an interview uh, to the Boulder Daily Camera. Well, look, I mean, uh, you got to believe about a third of what you see out there. And, um, you know, we're we're members of the Pac-12. We're proud members of the Pac-12. And, um, you know, we've, we've got to see uh, where our media rights deal lands and, and uh, where our conference goes. And, you know, in a, in a perfect world, we'd love to be in the Pac-12. And, 
uh, but we also have to do what's right for Colorado at the end of the day, and um, you know we'll evaluate things as we move forward. All right. So you know, I'm hearing a guy who's playing both sides a little bit there. I don't know what everybody else is hearing, but there you go. Um, look, I I still want more phone calls. I still want to talk more about non-conference scheduling. Anna's going to come along here in the four o'clock hour. Mike in Vancouver has is uh, been holding. Mike, go ahead. Hi, John. Hey, um, it was a little off topic, but uh, it's still about the Pac-12 football. Um, listening to him talk about bringing in San Diego State and uh, SMU. And um, after trying to understand the draw of San Diego State, I kind of get that one. I, I kind of like that one, actually. Um, but SMU, I, I don't get it. And I was wondering what you thought and if there would be any potential of getting a school like Texas Tech. Because if you had the South and added that in with the Arizona schools and the, and the new San Diego school. And uh, then you still had the North uh, San Francisco and Utah yeah. and the Oregon and Washington schools yeah. on the North. It just seems like that wouldn't be a geographic problem. And it, it wouldn't. Tech, it wouldn't, but I don't, love, I don't love Lubbock's TV market. And so I think if you're going to go into Texas, you, you would dabble with looking at Houston, Dallas, the two biggest TV markets in the state of Texas. Now, you could go after Houston. They're already in the Big 12. You could go after SMU. They are there to be had. So I think it's more likely that they go after the TV market rather than the school that still allows you to recruit that state. All right, 4 o'clock hours ahead. We'll deal with a lot more of this. I'll tell you what Mullins said about his scheduling strategy and why Portland State could be a big winner. Leave it here. I don't know what you did with your uh, three-day weekend. I rather enjoyed it. We barbecued. We sat around. I never sit around. I'm not one of those people who sits around. I need to sit around more. You know, I, I do. It would it, it would serve me well come, like, Thursday at 5.30 if I sat around more. I feel like I got an extra day of rest. Oh, we did. We all did. Nice to have that. Um, you know what I, we also did, you know, Stephen? We went to church on Sunday, and it used to be a tradition in my family. We would go to church, and then we would go get a donut. I think it was what my parents' way of making church a little more fun. <laughs> I, uh, we went to get donuts after church, and we went to a place called Donut King. I don't know if you've seen one of these places, but they truly are the kings of donuts. And while in Donut King, I brought the seven-year-old and the soon-to-be nine-year-old, and they went in and helped make the uh, make the, make the selections. Have you ever done this? This is kind of like a uh, it's kind of like the NBA draft, NFL draft. You know, uh, all right, which which sprinkled donuts do you want? And the kids pointing them out. But the guy that was behind the counter, I got the impression that his family owned the business. And I always uh, I have a soft spot for families that are running businesses like that. And so we got to 12 donuts. And you know what he said, Stephen? At 12? What did he say? He said, you need one more. Baker's dozen, he said. And it got me thinking, do you know, like, the origin of Baker's dozen? No, I don't. I just know that it's uh, 13. That's all I know. Right. Yeah. That's what I knew. Well, I got into the car and I said to Anna, I said, you know, why do they why do they call it a baker's dozen? 
You know, what, what, what's the point here? And she, she immediately researched it, and it goes back to medieval law hmm. that specified that the weight of a bread loaf needed to be a certain weight and that any baker who supplied less than that weight to a customer could be punished by law, like severely punished, medieval law. I don't mess around with medieval law. So bakers would sell the loaves by 12s, obviously, dozen loaves, whatever. They would always include a 13th loaf just to make sure that they were safe, that they were not going to get penalized, punished, um, stretched in a million directions, decapitated. I don't know what medieval law was for shorting somebody on a loaf of bread. But I know that the bakers didn't want to be subject to it. So the bakers always threw in that extra loaf of bread. It was a baker's dozen. It was 13. And to this day, when I go into a donut shop, I'm getting an extra donut. It's fascinating. Even if you have to pay more for it. I guess. Are they? Are they baking it into the prize? Are they, uh, you know what I'm baking it into the profit? Like yeah, going, hey, we're, we're going to have to give this guy a extra donut. But if you buy 11, I, I did the math. If you buy 11, it, it seems to me that you're better off buying 12, which really is 13, because you get a better price. Yeah, sounds good. Hey, more donuts. I'm happy. There you go. Uh, Baker's Dozen. You now sit around your your table tonight at dinner, and ask it. You know anybody know why it's a baker's dozen? It goes back to medieval law, and I don't even think the bakers today know why they're doing it. You know, like it's it, just tradition, it, just tradition, John. Yeah. You know, somebody told me to do it. They said a ba- They said it's not. It's never twelve. It's thirteen. But you are anyway. right though with the kids and the donuts and like the the choosing of it. It is fascinating because you yes. got you know it is a draft, snake draft. You know. First, first pick is the second, third pick. It, it's true. It's a whole thing, and you got to be very careful with it. What you do as a father? Yeah. Well, I went to uh, the idea that you know I we ended up with six chocolate donuts that were covered with rainbow sprinkles, <laughs> which seems kind of like an aggressive amount when you're getting a baker's dozen. Seems a little excessive, yeah. But, <laughs> a little excessive. So I was mixing in some of the boring ones. Like I said, all right, a couple of old fashioned. Cake donuts, nothing on them. Kids were like groaning at me. Then they made up with going two giant chocolate bars, like chocolate covered bars. And I was like, okay, now we're going with just a regular glazed with my draft pick. And so it was kind of a back and forth. But then it really struck me. So that was on Sunday. We got in the car. The kids immediately were tearing into the donuts. Anna wanted to make them wait till they got home. Not happening. Impossible impossible how do you you know like she was like i'm just gonna hold him here i'm like yeah you want him to really tear this car apart right now (laughs) like this is not gonna go well so uh it struck me though 24 hours later we were down to four donuts (laughs) and i don't think anna had one and so i was doing the math on that and i said really if you think about it your dad's visiting it's only a donut and a half per person in 24 hours she was like no uh, I didn't have one. Uh, her dad did have one. And I was like, somebody had three donuts in a 24-hour period. I like your justification, though. You know, eh, it's only one and a half. That happened last time we got donuts, too. My my oldest son, he did math. He's like, who had four? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> got all mad. And, and Anna said, uh, you know, she she took a bite a day later of one of the glazed ones. And she said, not as good as Krispy Kreme. And I'm like, a day later? Yeah, not as good. 
you had to have had it yesterday in the car right away. <laughs> That's when you needed to take a bite. Day I had a day-old bagel, and I thought the same thing. It was like, yeah, it's just not as good as a fresh one. Not as good as a fresh one. That's why they sell them as day-old bagels. Yeah. All right, we're going to play some Punch It audio, but first, Dave in Vancouver has a question about the baker's dozen. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, so uh, you talked about 13 loaves of bread. Like, my question is, who the hell needs 13 loaves of bread well, at one time? It. Let me get are let me they, get with my medieval sources here <laughs> and ask I mean, them. Are they small loaves? I I don't get it. Thirteen loaves of bread. I would throw twelve and a half of those in the garbage. Well, I think the so. baker. I think the baker was selling the loaves to a middleman. Like they were going. Like the baker wasn't selling direct to consumer. Like the, so, I like think to a community, right? Yeah, or oh. the baker was selling to the neighborhood grocery. Or whatever in medieval times. I don't know. The Am it was like the baker was not Amazon Prime. Should have been. I'm doing should've. further research. Yeah, should have been Dave. Like if the baker had only thought, you know what I could do? I could sell these loaves of bread alongside CDs and books and uh, refills for people's razors, and I could make a I could make a lot more money if I shipped them direct in these medieval times. And the baker would now own an NFL team. You know. But didn't happen. I believe the baker was selling to a third party who was then turning around and selling said loaves to the public. I don't know. Just a theory I have, and that's about enough of a baker's dozen that I'm going to do today. Um, I want to I play Punch It Audio. We'll include some Pac-12 stuff in here, but we have so much to talk about. Giddy up. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Warriors General Manager Bob Myers leaving the Warriors. Is it good for Golden State? Tim Legler thinks so. Punch it. I personally don't feel like you can... Uh, pass on this team winning another championship until Steph Curry shows decline. He's still at that level, right? So now it's about what do you build around him? What do you do with the rest of that roster? And I think for Bob Myers, look, it's a, it's a big blow. A guy that's had this much success, he's been there over a decade. Uh, I think for him, it's probably, you know what, I've gotten about all I can. My value added to this project, this organization, is about all it's going to be. So now maybe there's another challenge out there for him, also for the Warriors. This could be potentially something where you get now a fresh set of eyes in there to maybe think about things and, and get a little bit more creative with some of the ways that you can reinforce this roster around Curry and Thompson going forward. So I don't necessarily think this is a terrible thing for the Golden State Warriors. If he has reached this conclusion, it is time. If that's how he feels internally, and now it's up to the Warriors to fill that position with somebody that can help get creative and, and continue this run, because I don't think you can close the window yet. There's been a lot of speculation about what drove this decision by Myers. He was on an uh, expiring contract. He was a lame duck basically this year. And different reports have said, look, um, you know, he wasn't among the top paid executives in the sport despite four NBA championships. Um, the others have speculated that he just wanted something new. Others yet have said, you know, he wanted a piece of ownership. Uh, the Warriors did offer him. Uh, some ownership opportunities in the end. It, it would have made him one of the league's top paid executives, would have given him partial ownership of the Warriors, whatnot. I kind of just think that the job of building a championship team is 
never-ending, exhausting, probably pulls at the seams 24-7, 365. I think it's incredibly emotional, incredibly draining to try to build a winner in today's NBA. And I kind of just think Bob Myers is being honest when he says it's just time. There's a season for all things. There really is. It's why I think sometimes coaches who have done a good job, it's not the worst thing that they leave. That you know, there's some new ideas. I agree with Legler. There's some new ideas in the room. Uh, maybe they, you know, it's just time. They've had their turn. But his success with the Warriors is undeniable. And you've got Joe Lacobe, the uh, the owner of the Warriors, the governor of the Warriors, who's got a son, Kirk, who's the vice president of basketball operations. He's got Mike Dunleavy Jr. in there as a VP of basketball operations. There's just some younger guys in the room that maybe will make building a winner their life in the way that Bob Myers knows all too well. Do you think that he will end up popping up somewhere else later on in his career? I don't think so. It kind of feels to me like if he really wanted this, he wanted this part of, you know, to be part of basketball and building a roster that he would either have moved to uh, maybe step aside and let Dunleavy Jr. or Kirk LeCobe take a larger role while he continued to be GM. I just, I kind of think that he's going to go try something else. And once you get out, the hard thing about the NBA, and I think Bob Witsit, former GM of the Blazers, knows this. Once you get out and you've been out a couple of years, it's really difficult to get back in. I wouldn't be surprised to see Myers pop back in in a different role totally, Stephen. Like, could he be part of an ownership group in Vegas? Like, maybe? Yeah. But not as a GM. Were you asking as a GM or Yeah, I was maybe, kind of, kind of yeah. as a GM. I mean, in a couple of years, you know, there'll be GM spots open. He takes a look at a team and he likes it. Maybe he goes there. But I'm with you. I, I feel like the legacy he built as a general manager is kind of done. And maybe he moves on to bigger and better things. I just don't know. After winning a championship last year, I think you can't leave on that winning note. You know, it's like you're at a blackjack table, Steve, and you and I are sitting there. And you've won four huge hands in the last eight are you leaving on a win, or are you going one more before well, you leave? That's the problem. I can't leave on a win because I'm on right. a hot streak, and I can't lose leave on a loss because you know then I'm losing. So, uh, but no, yeah, I, I know what you're saying on that one. Yeah, you can't leave on a big win. Yeah. So I think he came back this last year, and it didn't quite work out. I think it's a good time for him to go. You also are looking at the core of that roster with the Warriors aging out a little bit. I don't know how much more they have left. Jeff Van Gundy. Broadcaster talking about the NBA Finals. It's the Nuggets. It's the Heat. Here's Van Gundy. Love this guy. Punch it. I hope it's a resounding success and a celebration of two teams who did a tremendous job navigating their playoff runs. And even if it's not the most highly rated Finals, and I don't know if it will be or won't be, but even if it's not, I, I think it's still... Uh, speaks well about the league in that whereas some people before tuning in may not have seen much of Jokic they're going to be drawn more in uh, as the years go on to watching his greatness and if you're not as clued into Bam Adebayo and the versatility of his game uh, you will be after you know watching this where it may suffer a bit in ratings because people don't know the 
competitors as well. I think if they give it a chance, it'll be very, very well received. NBA Finals. Miami is getting eight and a half points in game one on Thursday. Nuggets eight and a half point underdog in game one. Uh, Steven, you've been a little bit all over the place. But the Nuggets are minus 400 to win this series. The Heat are plus 310. I just don't see any sense in anybody betting on the Nuggets. No, it's it's too hard to lay that number. But I really, I mean, again, I'm going to go against the Heat again. I've gone against them all, all playoffs long. <laughs> Every series, I would I thought they were going to lose. I, I, I'm amazed that they're here. I, I really think Denver is a much better team. I'm, I'm going to be shocked and surprised to see what Miami comes up with the Teresop Jokic. Bam Adebayo, good defender. But that's about it that they got. I mean, they got Cody Zeller. Really going to throw him out there? I don't know, man. I just think Denver matches up really tough with uh, Miami. I think Denver has it pretty easily. Do you think that the, the the biggest possibility is that Denver has been sitting a little bit and on the sidelines? And sometimes you will see a team, especially a team playing at home after a rest, lose a game one. Like, is that – to me, that's – when I start constructing the narrative for the Heat to win the series, it starts with – Hey, Denver has a bad game one just because they've been sitting and Miami's been playing to advance. Yeah, I think that. I also think the fact that Denver, a lot of their players have never played in NBA Finals. You know, I know Miami played in the bubble, so it still kind of counts. But uh, to be on that stage, yeah, I think in game one, it's a spot where Miami could go in and get it. Jimmy Butler has shown to do it. Um, I just, I, I can't I can't see Kayla Martin shooting 60% on three-pointers and making every shot imaginable again in another series. Like, it just, it just seems very unlikely that the Heat can... Uh, just do this again. They've done it three times. Maybe they'll do it four, but man, it just seems very unlikely to me. I think Denver, you know, is a much better team over Miami. Van Gundy uh, also said that if the Heat win, they are the most unlikely NBA champion he can remember. Punch. I think it's gonna. If they end up winning the championship, it'll be the most unlikely uh, champion that I can remember because they will have beaten the team, uh, the teams with the top two records in the NBA. Uh, they will then have beaten the number one seed in the Western Conference in this playoff run. So the journey has been straight through the heart of greatness. Look, I think uh, Ben Gundy's a great broadcaster. I got to get him on the show. Uh, I think if the Heat win, it would be a great story. It'd be great for the NBA. It would reinforce the idea that it's more like the NFL than maybe ever before in its history and that there's some parity and that you know, a low-seeded team that eked its way into the playoffs and stayed alive can win a championship. But on the other hand, a win by Denver is a win for small market teams. It, it gives hope to places like Portland that you can build a winner. I think it's worth uh, noting that I think it's going to be a great, great series and an interesting series. More interesting to me than back in the day when we were getting LeBron with the Heat, you know, and, and all these matchups that, seemingly were between teams that you know we all expected to be there this is the uninvited guest against the small market team it's great josh pate talking about oregon he thinks they're close to a national title team he says they have depth here's pate punch it what stood out to me about oregon whether it be recruiting or the portal is number one they got bo nix to come back so they're set at quarterback but then number two they are stacking defensive linemen, man. They are really, really yeah. good and building depth, which is what you and I both know. Anytime you're watching high-level games and you're watching games featuring teams that you're talking about with that kind of playoff sense around them, when they roll their twos in there, 
I'm not saying there's not a drop-off, but there's not a big drop-off. And you don't have to sacrifice to roll your second and third team in there. Some, some of them go three deep, but easily most of the championship contenders are going too deep on the front. And I don't know if Oregon's going to be like cruising altitude there yet, but I think they'll be closer than any team out there this year. And in a conference that's going to be all about quarterbacks, like if you can get after the quarterback better than anyone else, that feels like it gives you a leg up out there. Look, uh, I think I think Oregon's going to be good. I'm not ready to go national championship conversation because I haven't seen Oregon on the defensive side of the ball play like a team capable of winning the Pac-12 championship yet. And that depth, you're, they're going to need it at the defensive tackle position. That's where I think it is most missing in Oregon's uh, game. And uh, yes, I know they've got a transfer from South Carolina who's super interesting, big body, but they don't have the depth at that D tackle that is going to be necessary to compete at the highest levels. They've got the quarterback. They've got the receivers. The receivers are scary. I think they'll run the ball fine. Questions for me with Oregon are all on the defensive side of the ball. I think it's going to be really fun to see if they could answer. Can Washington compete for a title? It's Cole Kublik. Is that right, Kublik? Yeah. Here he is talking about Washington as a sleeper for the national championship. What are we doing? Everybody's sleeping. Everybody's chasing titles. Punch it's it. probably not a sleeper for a lot of people out west. I feel like nobody's talking about Washington. Yeah. None. And you got a quarterback that should have been in New York. Now, you do lose some pieces of your offensive line. You just got Dylan Johnson, a guy who's literally Ram Man from He-Man running the football. Like, will just put his head down and blast through you. They have a great receiver core with essentially everybody back. Tight ends back. They have a ton of leadership left over from that team last year. And Kalen DeBoer will tell you that's the reason they got to where they were last year was leadership. I understand that there are, there's a boatload of elite quarterbacks in the Pac-12. And what does that equal? Upsets. So they may drop a game or two that they're not supposed to, but I think they'll win a game or two they're not supposed to. And yes, we could probably have a similar discussion about Oregon, about USC. We could maybe Oregon State, depending on what happens with DJ. We don't really know just yet. But... I think Washington's the team that if I had to right now, they would be my leader in the Pac-12 and sort of my dark horse for the national championship. So therefore, yeah, I would qualify Washington as a sleeper team right now. But Kiblick played at Auburn. He's now at ESPN, the SEC Network. And, you know, I, I don't mind him mentioning Washington as a dark horse. I think it's interesting because I think when you look at the Pac-12 teams that could contend, it's a really interesting group do i believe oregon could compete for a national championship maybe if the defensive side of the ball follows suit do i believe washington can get there they got michael Penix jr but again i have the same questions for washington like they're gonna have to be better on defense and they're gonna have to run the ball a little bit to be in that college football playoff usc's built to contend caleb williams is good and usc has compiled with players like bear alexander the necessary physicality the question I have about USC is going to be the question I will always have about USC about distractions and your AD and can Caleb Williams continue to be what he was a year ago? I think those are serious questions for USC. Utah feels more geared towards a team that could compete for a Pac-12 title, not a national championship. Same for Oregon State. There, There is a step that has to happen, and it's a doozy of a step. This is not like a, hey, 14-inch step, another 14-inch step on the ladder. When you are going from, hey, we want to win 10 games to we want to be in Vegas for the Pac-12 championship game, that's a step. There is another step beyond that that is the equivalent of like five steps. 
and it and that's the one where you go, can we compete for a national title? And I think Oregon State and Utah are in the can we compete for the Pac-12 title conversation. I think the other three schools can get a little stars in their eyes, and and I will permit that for the fan bases. And I don't think Oregon State fans are going to be mad at me for saying this. Like, I think Oregon State can compete for the Pac-12 title. I would not be surprised if Oregon State got to Vegas. But are they ready to take the national championship step? That's a doozy. Leave it here. Anna's popping into the studio. No more donuts. I can guarantee that. Anna's popped into the studio. She's been running around. You get any donuts? Huh? Any more donuts? We're out of donuts, I hear. Yeah. The kids ate them all. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. I got half a donut. Yeah, a day old, too. You yeah. waited too long. Yeah. And the rest of them, gonzo. Steven mocking you for thinking that the kids were going to allow you to hold 13 donuts in your lap all yeah, the you, way home. You snooze, you lose. I mean, come on. Huh? <laughs> Is that how donuts go at your house? Do they oh, disappear that quickly? It's a, it's a free-for-all. Yeah, it's, it's a fight. We're pushing and shoving to get a donut. <laughs> Do you feel bad if you eat, like, a donut you know your kid would really like? I had that moral conundrum. I think it was on uh, Monday morning. I saw a sprinkled donut left in the box, and I went, if I eat that, that's the last sprinkled donut. That's not a very, can I just say, this is not a very grown-up thing to eat a sprinkled donut that's rainbow-colored <laughs> sprinkles. It's not, but it looked mighty good. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you went for the cake donut. Yeah. And I looked over, and I was like, huh, you think you know someone? That's right. And they're over there eating a cake donut. Surprise you. I am uh, I know. threat at any time. I know. To make any decision. <laughs> I might go to the salad bar at a steakhouse. You know? <laughs> I might suggest we have sushi. I I don't I don't care for the cake donut. Oh. It's a little too dense for me. I like the lighter texture. I was drinking coffee and I as I told you earlier, there are some things like I didn't find coffee until I was in my thirties. Uh -huh. Okay, I didn't. I wasn't one of these people. My grandpa will tell you, like you know, when he when he was uh, like he was probably like twelve years old. Those kids were having coffee for breakfast <laughs> before they went off to the mill. Yeah. You know, it was coffee yep. and a piece of stale bread. Bread, bread uh, and coffee. That was breakfast. Know. Okay, yeah. so I unfortunately I didn't find coffee until my thirties. I was drinking soda in my twenties, yeah. like mm -hmm. massive amounts of soda. Not good for me. Yeah. And to this day, like, I see, like, the big gulp, and I'm like, that's way too much soda for one person. Mm -hmm. Should not be having that much soda. But, um, you know, I found coffee, and so I like a I like a more dense pastry with the coffee. Uh, yeah. It goes with it. Uh-huh. Doesn't leave you as uh, gummed up, so to speak, <laughs> if you have some coffee and a cake donut. That's what the cake donut's made for. Also, I thought it was a pretty grown-up thing for me. Yeah. Made me feel like I was very mature as uh -huh. I was eyeing the sprinkle donut. Yeah. I don't, there's no shame in, in eyeing and, and consuming a sprinkle donut. I think, it's a, I think it's bad form if it's the last sprinkled donut. Because yeah. the kids are gonna go. The kids aren't gonna notice if like there's five sprinkled donuts and I have one. Yeah. But if it, they're, they're gonna come, not gonna miss a bear claw. They're gonna come back in and go, who ate the last sprinkled donut? And it's gonna be <laughs> this guy. That's what they're gonna remember from their childhood. My dad took the sprinkled donut. I don't want to do that to them. Never um, mind all the other sacrifices. How about I told the story of the baker's dozen on yes. air? Yes. You did a good job researching that. Yeah. Medieval bakers. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that funny, the things that we say and do in modern life that 
harken back to you know medieval times, and we don't even know why. S- Stephen Ray raised a good point, and I would love to get the baker on the show. Yeah. I would like to know if the price of the 13th donut has become, so to speak, baked into the price mm. of the dozen. Yeah. Or, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they now know, A, I can sell a dozen for $22 or whatever they mm-hmm. get for a dozen donuts these days. Yeah. Or do they now go, you know what, that 13th donut is actually part of the price. Mm-hmm. It's a it's surcharge. Not a, it's not a freebie. You're not even aware of. Yeah. Like the medieval bakers were giving away that donut. Right. The modern bakers are living off that donut. It represents profit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I feel it's, you. I'm fascinated by this stuff. We need a baker to call in. We will uh, get a baker on this. I'm sure they do because yeah. they know they're giving away 13 donuts. They have to account for the ingredients, the time, the labor, the donuts missing. Yeah. It's part of their inventory. This is important stuff. Well, the challenge here is that bakers might be rusting because bakers get up at 2 in the yeah. morning to bake. Your dad was a baker. He was. He was a baker. By the way, he's a 77-year-old baker who is living in our house. Mm-hmm. And I said to him the other day, what did he bake? And he said, I got up at 2 in the morning, like you said. Yeah. And he worked from 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. And he was working in Hawaii on, a, on the island of Oahu at one of the local resort hotels. Yeah. He'd work, he worked at the Hyatt. So he'd go to the Hyatt and he'd bake from 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. And then he'd finish. And then he'd walk over to another hotel and bake uh, until 1 or 2 in the afternoon there. He's doing a double. Yeah. Okay. So I asked him the other day, what did you bake? And he said, Danish, croissants, donuts. He did it all. Yeah. And so I'm looking at him like, let's get going. (laughs) Like, what are we waiting for? What do we need? Do I need a vat of oil? Do I need some sugar, some butter? Lots of butter. Lots of butter. I guarantee you that guy does not want to see another croissant or a Danish. Because our youngest likes to bake. And I was like, oh, maybe you can teach Soji how to make a croissant. And he got this funny look on his face like, I have no intention of baking another (laughs) item in my life. That's so wrong. It's like if we it's like we have the Ted Williams of bakers in our house and we're going, (laughs) Hey, show her how to hit a curveball. And he's going, I don't know. I've hit too many in my life. I don't know if I want to do that. On the other hand, you can understand it. I, I guess. Um, I don't I don't uh, quite know what to do with this story. I want to pivot into sports here for just a second here. But it, the SEC coaches are talking. Mm-hmm. And they gave an interview, uh, first to Sports Illustrated, and then later did an interview with uh, ESPN.com. Um, they're talking about, what a cutthroat business college athletics is transfer portal nil they're basically coaches on all sides and athletic directors at all side are saying that tampering is happening and it it was happening well before the portal they're also saying that you know this is all off the rails why do you think everybody's talking about it so much because normally when people used to cheat back in the day Mm -hmm. nobody said anything like, they would give you a nudge-nudge and a wink-wink, and they'd go, we're not doing what Kentucky's doing in basketball, or yeah. we're not doing what Alabama's doing in football, or USC's doing in football. But now, it seems like this week in particular, in the last 24 hours, we've seen people put their names on these stories. Ross Dellinger, Sports Illustrated, had this great story about sort of the corruption that's going on. Mm-hmm. ESPN had a story about it. Why do you think people are putting their names on it? Why so public? Um, They're probably feeling like it's safer to come out and talk about it because there's more of a chorus of people discussing it. 
I mean, I it, it is. I mean, don't you agree that it's it's like crazy, out of whack, but not for everyone in the NIL world. So you have just the top tier handful of players who are cashing in on the big deals, but by and large, you know, college athletes on average are not raking in these this big money. They're not making, in fact, more money than, you know, the coach's brother-in-law who is a pediatrician, for example. The, uh, the story on Sports Illustrated focused on the SEC. Headline, inside the NIL battle that is splintering the SEC, quote, we're all money laundering, end quote. Um, some of the legislation in these states has been geared towards giving advantages to states like Arkansas, Missouri, Texas, and Oklahoma, allowing for schools to bring NIL programs under their roof while also prohibiting enforcement from the NCAA. Oh, wow. So the states themselves, the football-crazy states, have gotten involved with laws that give the universities there an advantage over, like, the Pac-12 universities or some of the other universities. Now, everyone will get there eventually, hmm. but they're basically going, might as well bring it in-house. Let Bring the cheating in-house. I mean, they're kind of moving towards classifying the athletes as employees anyway. So it just feels like this is all happening really fast. And it's just like they're just they're just moving the parameters. Like, oh yeah. well, this is this is the set of parameters we had to operate in. Well, what if we just move them? What if we just move them wider, and it'll make it all okay? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Don't you think though that there's a risk for any coach that is going on record and putting his or her name uh, with an article that is critical? Because in the end like recruiting it matters a lot right yeah. so it, i don't i don't necessarily if i'm the parent of a star athlete i don't know that i would want to go to a school where there's a coach who's saying uh oh, these nil deals are too much the kids are making too much money i just want to go somewhere where uh everybody top down in the sports administration is fully on board and saying hey let's see how much we can make these yeah. kids i feel like the universities that are speaking out are the ones that know that they it's not sustainable for them mm -hmm. that they can't compete with the collectives with some of the bigger you know fan bases okay. and more rabid fan bases so it's almost like they're crying foul before the foul has occurred yes. really because they are they're preemptively and they're proactively saying there's a problem here we're all laundering money there's a problem because they know that they can't launder money at the rate that like Walter White was doing in breaking bad <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. like there's a problem here with uh -huh. with doing it on that scale uh -huh. um it wasn't that long ago that the schools weren't even allowed to say Hey, this is our preferred NIL. I know. Well, I know when Scott Barnes, the athletic director at Oregon State, came out and said that Damnation Collective was the preferred NIL, he sent out an email, and I was like, whoa, can they do that? And then mm -hmm. I found out, yeah, they can do that. Now, it was an advancement in law. But guess what? In other states, the actual fundraisers on campus can, in addition to asking for, hey, support the library, buy season tickets, pay a license, donate to the athletic fund, they also now can ask the donors, hey, donate to the NIL fund as well. Would you like to do that? Hmm. And these are pros. These are professionals. Some of the NIL entities, particularly in the Pac-12, because these are the ones I know the best, 
they're not run by professional fundraisers. So like, who are they run by? They're run by donors who own businesses who got in early and went, I can help with this. Mm-hmm. Because that was the spirit of it when it first started. Yeah. And, like, you know, the Cougar Collective at Washington State's a great example. It's like a bunch of donors that, like, aren't Phil Knight's level of donor who are putting in what they can mm-hmm. because they want to retain athletes and not lose them to other schools. Okay? Oregon State, uh, you know, you have Dick Oldfield, who is a former Nike executive. You've got another former athlete on campus who's helping out with their collective. These aren't, like, the professional fundraisers that the universities have. You know, we know some of the fundraisers at Oregon yeah. and other places, and these these are, like, highly evolved fundraisers. Yeah. They know how to speak the language of the people who have the big checkbooks mm-hmm. and, you know, write the checks. Mm-hmm. They know what matters to the to the wealthy and, you know, generous yes. crowd. Right. They know how and to. And that's a delicate relationship. Totally. I couldn't do it. I'd screw that up so fast. Totally know how to do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, I'm into it to the extent of, like, you know, somebody that I know goes, hey, you know, do you think um, – you you could get uh, an interview with a prominent donor who's at Oregon or Oregon State. Mm-hmm. And I start to go, well, you know, I know somebody who knows him, like maybe one of the fundraisers, and they want to know who's asking. Is that person <laughs> able to write a check? Right. Because we, we'd be happy to connect them in our ecosystem. But we also, they're looking for, they're mining for new money. Yeah. And they know where it's buried. <laughs> so I don't, th- I think it's, it's not going to be long before every state has very friendly NIL rules. Oregon needs to get there. State of Oregon. Or is it behind? Yes. Compared to these schools like in Missouri and Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana and the 11 states that encompass the SEC, mm. it is behind the times already. And meanwhile, the NCAA is trying to put guardrails on this thing, and they know that the only way to get them on is to, uh, is to go to uh, Congress and mm. go, hey, we need a congressional intervention. So college athletics is really, uh, in that sense, is in trouble. But I, I hope this college football season doesn't feel like we're talking about NIL and Transfer Portal all the time, but I, I fear that will be the tailgate discussion. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. I'm fascinated by this story uh, it, it, out of Golden State. Joe Lacob, the, uh, the owner or the uh, governor of the Warriors uh, saying he has not made a decision on who will who will operate the team. Bob Myers, the general manager, uh, in case you uh, don't know, uh, announced today that he is leaving the organization. Um, and uh, Lacob says that the uh, Warriors have not tabbed a replacement. A lot of people believe that that replacement uh, will be a, a familiar name in the in the Portland area, but uh, I think as people are sort of looking at, uh, you know, the Warriors. Obviously, you you know you go to the uh, you go to the you know the Warriors roster of people, and you go, okay, they're not going to want to uh, to go outside the family. Mike Dunleavy Jr. is there as a assistant GM, so uh, we'll keep an eye. He's the vice president of basketball operations. He's been there for the last two years. He's been with the Warriors for five years. Keep an eye on Dunleavy as a uh, possibility for that job. Uh, also, I think if I'm Bob Myers, the Warriors' uh, outgoing general manager, I need some time off. I believe him when he says, you know, it's time. 
I also think that with a Vegas NBA franchise looming via expansion, he would not be a bad pick as a partial owner slash let him have some advisory duties with your franchise if you were going to launch a franchise in Vegas. I'm just spitballing here, but that's a guy that I would want involved with that conversation. Uh, turning and pivoting to um, the college basketball world, Caleb Love, who left North Carolina, uh, has picked Arizona. Anna, do you know why this is significant? I have Caleb, no idea. Caleb Love uh, leaving. He was, a, he was a significant player. North Carolina player who was part of their national championship just a couple of years ago. Like, Stephen, okay. Stephen, can I get an amen on Caleb Love's, you know, contributions at North Carolina? Yeah, uh, a couple of years ago when they got the national championship game, he was the point guard. He was their starting point guard. He was uh, arguably their best player. Uh, took a lot of big shots for that team to make, uh, make that run. So, yes, very good player. All right, so I want to remind you, Anna, since you were not paying attention on May the 17th on this show. <laughs> When I said, as part of the big splash in the 3 o'clock hour, Caleb Love's leaving North Carolina, and then I just started spitballing. Yeah. Where do I see him? Where could he end up? Where does he need to be? Who needs him? Well, this is a uh, splashy one in college basketball. North Carolina transfer Caleb Love had committed to Michigan, but now he's reopened his recruitment. This report breaking uh, just a bit ago, he committed to the Wolverines last month, but now apparently there's an admissions issue related to credits that he was trying to transfer from North Carolina to Michigan. St. Louis native now becomes the best available player in the transfer portal. Remember, he initially chose Michigan over his home state, Missouri. Six-foot-four guard, averaged about 17 points a game, good shooter, shot... uh, Nearly 38% from the field. And a former five-star recruit uh, is a Nike guy. He's viewed as a Nike guy. There's some speculation that he could end up at Arizona. There's some speculation that maybe Oregon is in on this. He feels like a seven-figure player as you look at uh, the possibilities. So keep an eye. We forget two years ago he led uh, North Carolina to the national championship. Like He was the point guard, so he is that good. He's a good player. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a, there's an academic issue with some transfer credits here, but I'd like to see him with Tommy Lloyd at Arizona. And I keep an eye on that as this uh, as this unfolds. But, all right, there it is. You know where he decided to go? Nostradamus. Arizona. Yeah. He picked Arizona, for crying out loud. Steven, thanks for hunting that down. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had several friends reach out to me and go, you were right. And I was like, about what? <laughs> about uh, which wh- thing? Which thing was oh, I right I, about? The I'm donuts? Right, I'm right about so many. Was I right about the donuts? <laughs> was I right about the baker's dozen? Um, no, I think this is really important for Tommy Lloyd at Arizona. Why? He, they, you know, Given the way that they were knocked out of the NCAA tournament, given that everybody's looking at Gonzaga's success, he used to be an assistant for Mark Few at Gonzaga. He goes to Arizona. I think a lot of people were looking at, you know, the uh, – the last regime at Arizona had some problems, but they also had some talent on the roster, and people were going, okay, Tommy Lloyd's winning, but not with his guys. This is a big get for him. Mm-hmm. It's a big get for Arizona. I was focused because Michigan was the place. Like, North Carolina's a Nike school. Yeah, Michigan's a Nike school. He was going to Michigan. Didn't, you know, the entrance problems that he had at Michigan were obviously enough of an issue that he couldn't go there. 
I started looking immediately at Nike schools. So I was looking at Arizona, and I was looking at Oregon. Who can pay seven figures? Who's a Nike school? And who badly needs him? I think Arizona was at the top of the list. I think I think Tommy Lloyd had to have him in the end. And I think, you know, that's why I think Caleb Love is going to Arizona. It's a big get for them, and it's a big get for the Pac-12. It also, I think, helps the narrative with Tommy Lloyd's sort of tenure there at Arizona because, again, people are looking at him going, is he living off the last guy's momentum? You know, bad exit out of the NCAA tournament, kind of embarrassing, but... I'm really curious to see what happens in the Pac-12 with basketball this year. I think Dana Altman's got a really good team that will be anchored more by players that feel a little less dicey. And I think getting, you know, Infali Dante to come back, getting Jackson Shellstad who will be in as a freshman. You look at Mookie Cook coming into the program. I think Oregon's going to be better equipped to compete. Um, I think big changes for them, but good changes. I think uh, watching uh, to see what happens at UC, USC mm-hmm. with uh, you know LeBron James Jr. <laughs> Basically, that's going to be kind of a show. Like I was watching, I was reading a thing that was about sort of his arrival mm-hmm. at USC and the entourage around him. And I was thinking that Rob Mullins at Oregon and Dana Altman, they'll never say this, but I wondered if they were just like, Phew. When they saw that. Can you imagine having to manage all that? I oh, That would be a whole nother job. It is a whole nother job. Like, they have people that are handling the people. Yeah. I mean, Colorado's doing some of that with Coach Prime. Right. They've got a whole staff of people. When you make a request to talk to Coach Prime, it's not the normal sports information people. It's me going to the normal sports information people who are then going to Coach Prime's people. Mm-hmm. It's the telephone game. Yeah. By the time by the time I get the yes or no back, who knows what the question will have been? A lot more hoops to jump through there. Wouldn't you love to know what that conversation was between Caleb and Arizona? Like you pointed out, obviously Arizona is another Nike school, but I'm so intrigued by that process because the psychology behind it, the strategy behind it, the competing agendas, and then where they find common ground. I think yeah. that whole world is is like really intriguing to me but think about he was at north carolina and then his home state is missouri okay like people would think oh he's gonna go to missouri no he was going to michigan yeah he you know and so to me he's gonna have no problem flying over the state of missouri to get what he wants (laughs) Mm -hmm. so he's going to michigan doesn't happen there the next best nike school for him to me is arizona or oregon Mm -hmm. so that made sense to me all right coming up we have the five at five stay tuned what are the stories Well, we've talked about conspiracy theories. We've talked about the Oregon Ducks and the Oregon State Beavers, Portland State, a little bit on today's show. Uh, Anna, I don't know if you have conspiracy theories, but one that I believe, this may surprise you. Can't wait. It's like me eating a cake donut Mm -hmm. on your watch. Yeah, that was surprising. Um, Here's a conspiracy theory that I actually believe. I saw on uh, TikTok... A Stanford professor that was interviewed, giving an interview about aliens, uh-huh. and he said he believes that it is probable that aliens have visited Earth. Okay? Yeah. He also believes they are among us. Oh. I think they are, too. Okay. How can you tell? How can we tell, collectively? I'm not, I'm not, there's no tell. Oh. I just, you know. 
Yeah. What if we're the aliens? They've already taken us over and we don't know it. Hmm. Think about that. We think we have autonomy, but we really don't. I don't know, Art Bell. I'm not sure. Do you believe that aliens have visited Earth? I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, my knowledge of Earth and everything that's happened on Earth is really, really small, really fractional. So yeah. I, it's, it's like one of those things where how could I definitively say, no, I don't think it happened because the evidence to the contrary is so out there. You know? Lunar landing. Do you think it, it was real? Do you think it was faked? I believe that was real. What makes you say that with such definitive, you know, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like it would be an incredible farce. Um, yeah. Uh, really, really, the government would have really gotten one over on all of us to have faked the lunar landing. I really want the lunar landing to be real. Uh, Jim Irwin, who was a astronaut that was Apollo, he was Apollo 15. Yeah. He drove like the land the rover not mm -hmm. the land rover he drove the moon rover <laughs> all over the moon yeah um i got to see that guy give a speech in person when i was like maybe 13 okay and he was super believable yeah and he even he even <laughs> autographed a little moon photo for me yeah and he was like full disclosure he told me this he said this isn't from when i landed on the moon oh okay and I and to me that built credibility. Yeah. Because you know if he was some bozo, he could have just said, you know, let me sign this. That's me waving from the moon. Not that's not what he did. He he signed a eight by ten for me. I still have it to this day. You do. Wow. He passed away. Mm -hmm. I saw Adolf Coors and Jim Irwin give a speech together. Uh huh. Adolf Coors was like from the Coors family. Yeah. By the way, if your name's Adolf. Yeah. Yeah. Go go by Ad. He or, just he just went know? with it. Yeah. Went with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There, there's certain names where it's cool. I don't know his middle initial was. Go by AJ or whatever, you know? AJ Coors. AJ Coors, way cooler diet guy than Adolf Coors. There's I just, have there's, watched. Go well, ahead. I was going to say, there's a, few, there's a few names, a few looks that you just can't pull off anymore. Like <laughs> Looks, they, even? Looks, yeah. Yeah. The, the Adolf mustache, you can't do that. He used to be yeah, the chaplain. You can't. Yeah, you can't. You know, there, there was a day not too uh, far ago, that uh, not too long ago, <laughs> that I uh, I was shaving, oh, and I didn't shave the area right below my nose because I was <laughs> kind of shaving blind, and I was like, I'll get that in a minute. And then I realized I was in the car about to back out of the driveway, and I realized I had the little laid-off stash. Oh, no. It, if, like, it had been, like, near the corner of my lips, or it had been, like... You know, I got an eyebrow I need to address. I would have done it later. Yeah. But I couldn't go out looking like Adolf. Well, that and you the know? shaved head. Yeah. yeah. That bad combination, right? <laughs> bad, that's like a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode, you know, as I'm hailing a cab, you know, yeah. like standing on the corner. Right. And I happen to wear boots that day. Right. You know, it's, it's just a bad look all the way around. Chunky pair of Doc Martens. Yeah. So, so aliens among us or not? Like, you're so definitive on the lunar landing. Yeah, I mean, look, when you watch the conspiracy theory documentaries about the lunar landing being faked, it is convincing. They're, like, they do give you reasonable doubt because when you look at the level of technology and where computers were at the time and all the things that yeah. had to happen precisely, correctly to make that happen, 
it is rather convincing. Then you're like, but, oh, well, okay, yeah, that's, this does seem like all those, strange. But all those people at Mission Control, you don't think like one person would be, break from yeah. rank and be like, you know what, we just made it up. Right. They're not saying that. Yeah. That's not part of the documentary. Right. They're not at all saying that. Yeah. So that leads me to believe. Uh, how about uh, JFK? I don't know enough Oswald. about I don't know. You, you need you're, to, you're way more into that. Than you me. need to start watching the. There's a thousand documentaries on I that know, thing. I know. I know. I know. Like I actually think Oswald fired a shot or two. Okay. okay. So but you don't think he acted? You think there was a second shooter? I think there were a lot of JFK had a lot of enemies. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. Think about all the stuff he was wrapped up in. Yeah. Okay. He wanted to end the CIA. Right. He, uh, you know, had some goings ons in the uh, in the White House. <laughs> You know, goings ons. We had some things happening. Who knows? Marilyn Monroe. Somebody might have been mad about that. Welcome you to know? the sports version of Coast to Coast. And uh, <laughs> Bay of Pigs, Castro. He had, there was just you're, a, you're the just... LBJ. LBJ wanted to be president. Like there was just LeBron. a lot of competing right. agendas. Mm-hmm. You know. Go on, Stephen. Oh, I said LeBron because he said LBJ. Mm. So yeah, I didn't know LeBron wanted LeBron. to be president. <laughs> Thanks for your contribution there. I, yeah. I just think <laughs> there were some, there were some, there were some people with motivation. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And this guy, this poor guy, all he was doing was rumbling around the country, and young people loved him. So let us begin anew, remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness, and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. I mean, come on. <laughs> he could bring it. He was like the first rapper, you know? Think about it. <laughs> he had it down. People wanted that guy gone. Go, go. JFK was like the first rapper. That's definitely the first time <laughs> I've heard that characterization. <laughs> I mean, he just, he had a, po- there was a poetry about his language. Whoever's writing those speeches. He was an orator. He was yeah. quite an orator. Era. Okay, here we go. The Five at Five. <laughs> the Five at Five. Era number one story as Anna sees it. Oh, boy. Let's start with uh, NCAA baseball. Oregon State and Oregon both advancing in NCAA baseball. Uh, this spring, Oregon State headed to the Baton Rouge regional nice that's not easy to say uh oregon headed to the nashville regional and play for both teams begins on friday like look i think it was uh oregon state foregone conclusion that they were going to get in but mark wasikowski's team got it done at the pac-12 baseball tournament there's no way around it they played great baseball they got to the championship game uh i was on the edge of my seat watching you know them play arizona uh, and and watching that all on Saturday night, and then here came Selection Monday. I was a little disappointed to see that you know both Oregon and Oregon State. I like to see one or the other host in most years, but Oregon State's going to Baton Rouge. They'll play Sam Houston State on Friday, five o'clock Pacific time, first pitch, and then you know presumably get LSU. LSU's playing Tulane on the other side of the bracket, but. For Oregon and Mark Wasikowski, this is a really good opportunity for the for the program. Think about this. It wasn't that long ago that Oregon was just getting back into the swing of things, just bringing baseball back. And here we are as Oregon is heading to Nashville for a regional game. 
collecting the Pac-12 tournament championship. And, oh, by the way, doing so in a year where they set a single-season record for home runs. They'll play Xavier on Friday morning. Uh, then, obviously, um, you got Vanderbilt, the number six overall seed in the tournament. That is uh, that is the best team in that that four-team bracket. Double elimination. I, I, I'm looking forward to see Oregon uh, mix it up with Vanderbilt to see who gets out of that regional and onto the super regional. For those who know or don't know, it's regionals, then super regionals, and then on to Omaha for the teams that advance past the super regionals. Anna, the number two story as you see it. Brianna Stewart returns to Climate Pledge Arena with the New York Liberty tonight, and it will mark an unprecedented moment in Seattle Storm history. In her 24 years, never before has a superstar come back after leaving via free agency. Now, she admits that, uh, you know, she's getting used to thinking of herself as a member of the Liberty, and there are some odd things about coming back, though. For example, she'll be staying in a downtown hotel with her team instead of the Belltown condo that she actually owns, <laughs> which she still calls Seattle home. It's really interesting because there's speculation about, you know, will she be booed? Will she be cheered? I think she's going to be cheered, but... You know, other star athletes who have come back in the past, Russell Wilson, haven't been treated very nicely by Seattle fans. Ken Griffey Jr., though, when he returned to Seattle, got a standing ovation as a member of the Reds. They People loved him. Remember, people uh, may remember that, you know, he, uh, he chose to uh, return to Seattle and play at the end of his career. But he also... I think, you know, became part of the ownership group in Seattle. And, uh, you know, he was with the White Sox just for a blink as well. But for people who remember Junior coming back to Seattle, he got a standing ovation. Russell Wilson got booed. I think Brianna Stewart gets a standing ovation as people go, oh, thank you. You helped us win big. Ask not what the 5 at 5 can do for you. No. The number three story. Uh, I only bring this up because there's a local connection to Kevin Love still. Uh, I think it's interesting. He's never lost a playoff series in the Eastern Conference. In the 2014-15 season, he was Eastern Conference champion. Hmm. Uh, 15-16, NBA champion. 16-17, Eastern Conference champion. 17-18, Eastern Conference champion. 22-23 22-23 Eastern Conference champion. He's done well. He's done well, but he was with LeBron, let's not forget, on those teams mostly that he won with. His all-time playoff record is 54-25. and 25. That's still good for a 68% win clip. Mm-hmm. Good for Kevin Love. So are you building a case here that, you know, who do you like to win? Like, you, you think Kevin Love's going to win this series? Mm. Kevin Love going to do it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, sure, I'll say that. Wow. You get good <laughs> odds on that right now. The Heat to win. I'll put some money on that. Plus 410. You heard it, Steven. I heard you it. You and Anna. Yeah. You and Anna. Wait, you're picking against the Heat. Yeah, I'm going against the Heat. Oh. This okay. is a time to bet the Heat. Steven's been, Steven has yeah. picked against the Heat in every round. Yeah, I've, I've been really right on, so. <laughs> and I, I, I actually thought after Boston won game six, there was no way that Miami could come back and win game seven. How do you explain that? I can't. I, I was with you. There's, there was no chance, but you know, Boston came out, and I think the Jason Tatum injury, first play of the game, 
really hurt him. I mean, he was he couldn't play. He it, it would have been interesting to see had Joe Mazzula decided not even to play him because he was so ineffective out there on the court when he had the basketball. I wonder if they would have been better, but at the same time, it, it, that's one of those decisions where, you know, it, it, there's no right choice because he is your best player and you do ride him. But I think that injury really hurt him. The number four story as Anna sees it is? Uh, speaking of injury, this is a different kind of injury. Shams is reporting that Celtic center Robert Williams, who came off the bench for Boston as one of the team's key pieces in the series against the Heat, was playing through a stomach bug on oh. Monday night. He was throwing up during the game. He only played 14 minutes. People were wondering what was up with him. He was coming in and out of the game, and when he would come out, he'd throw up. Dealing with a stomach virus, a stomach bug. He played through it. Uh, he was sick, and then he's sick going into today. And so he only played 14 minutes. Played 14 minutes, and that's it. Is he, well, now he can rest because his season's over. Boston's out. <laughs> um, 14 minutes coming in out of the game. I. That's show business, not show friends. Eight points, six rebounds, and... Uh, an upset stomach. I do want to as ask a mom, you. I, uh, yeah, go ahead. I say, John, I wanted to ask you about Jalen Brown with the Celtics. Now, a lot of Blazer fans are uh, on that to get him to Portland. Do you think the loss mm -hmm. not going to the finals by Boston helps that or hurts that or has any effect on it? It's um, it's interesting because I thought when this series was three zip that if you're a Blazer fan, that might be trending your way. But I think the fact that they came back and made it a seven game series. He always gets he always kind of gets pointed at as the guy when 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 the Celtics fall short, don't they? Like but but Jason Tatum and he after the game kind of were like pointing to the fact that you know, Tatum called Brown one of the best players in the league, said it's really important to keep him there. Um, they've been together since they were rookies. I I I kind of think that the fact that it went to seven if you're if you're Boston, you you now foolishly or not think that you're closer somehow you know you were there a year ago you're there now you know within one game of the finals this year you kind of I think you kind of have to feel like you keep the core together don't you yeah he he's definitely the scapegoat for sure like Tatum's getting no hate and you know he got hurt but at the same time like sometimes you gotta outperform that and so Jalen Brown definitely scapegoat he's expressed before how he'll play where he want where you know the fans want him where the team wants him so there's been some things um, him going away from Boston, but I'm with you. I, if you're Boston, how can you get rid of this core that's gotten you this far and gotten you within a couple of games of winning the championship two years in a row? Like it just seems a little crazy to me. But um, at the same time, who knows, man? Maybe it is a situation where he wants out of Boston and he wants to go to Portland. And I think there's so many factors you can point to if you are the ownership in Boston. You can go, hey, do we have the wrong coach? Like I'm saying that before I'm going. Let's break up Brown and Tatum. I'm going. Is Joe Mazzul is he the right coach? And I, and I think the fact that it went seven games, you know, helps Missoula and the, you know, helps everybody on that roster kind of say, hey, we're closer than we were. But you know, we've all seen catastrophic losses. Portland saw one in the Western Conference Finals in 2000. They blow the 15 point lead to the Lakers. That that moment, that game, triggered the Blazers to light the fuse on blowing up the roster. It wasn't. It wasn't that kind of loss for me. It could be though, because it wasn't. They were eight point favorites. Like we just said, there was no way we thought they were going to lose that game, and they got blown out. It wasn't even close. So maybe but, uh, that is that But don't you point to Tatum? Don't you point to Tatum and go, "Hey, they couldn't do it without him. It was too much to climb back from three zip down." 
I'm looking at the coach before I'm looking at this roster's broken. I do I too. Think, yeah. Yeah. I do too. So, I just I, I think as Blazer fans, we get excited about any little thing like that. But I'm with you. If you're Boston, there's other pressing issues besides Jalen Brown on your yeah. roster on the coaching staff, you know, to fix. If anything, yeah, it does tell you. I mean, similar to where the Blazers were in their decision on C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, I think everybody knew that C.J. McCollum was not the kind of player that could put the team on his back on a consistent basis and carry him you know, to the next level. I think Boston may have that realization with Brown, but I also think, like, they have to be thinking they're kind of like the Buffalo Bills from a year ago in the playoffs. They're kind of like the 49ers. You don't start breaking up your entire team. You have shrewd decisions to make. You have to ask yourself, do we have the right coach? You have to ask, can you get better? But you're not going to make a deal with Portland that makes you less competitive in the short term if you're Boston. You're you're knocking on the door. You be, you were at you were in the finals last year. You were within a game of getting to the finals this year. I think they feel like they're close. Finally, number 5 in this JFK themed 5 at 5. Is it though? I can uh, make it that way. Can I can I just make it that way? Before we do this one. Yeah. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. Come on. That's good writing. Who could be against that guy? Yeah, that's good writing. Except the CIA. Well, Castro. To you, lots of people. LBJ's yeah. entourage <laughs> going on. Go ahead. Uh, this is purely for discussion. Dwight Howard, you know, he's transitioned to Taiwan's T1 League. Ooh. Maybe that's what caught my eye. But he likes to remind people of his former dominance. He was uh, being interviewed by Chandler Parsons uh, on a podcast, and he was asked to pick between himself in his prime Mm. or Nugget center Nikola Jokic, who's currently in the prime of his young career. And uh, Dwight Howard, any guesses on what he said? He's the GOAT. Any guesses? He's the GOAT. (laughs) Steven, what do you think he said? Yeah, I think he thinks he's better than uh, everyone. He was the best James Bond ever. Prime Dwight (laughs) Howard. All day, all day, every day, I'm dominating every play with a smile on my face. Confidence not lacking. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what they say, they being former great players. I saw a video reel, though, over the weekend of Shaq in his prime. Steven, have you have you watched Shaq in his prime lately? I have, yeah. It's, uh, oh. it's incredible. He's, he's unguardable. Mm-hmm. And he's dunking the ball like I would on like a five foot rim. I, I've had this theory for a while that if Shaq came into the NBA now, he would be a bigger Giannis. Like that's the, the way he would evolve into this mm-hmm. game is he would be Giannis only seven foot one and even bigger because that's how athletic he was, right? Like yeah. he could move and dribble. He just wasn't allowed to back then. Like that's what he would be if he's in the NBA now. He G- was given where yeah. the show was going today. I thought for sure that sentence was ending with, I thought. That Shaq, I think Shaq was an alien. <laughs> he could, might, he could I thought that's how you would close out that thought. He shot might have or... <laughs> Where was he? November 1963. Oh, he wasn't born yet. He wasn't okay. a thought yet. Still, I need to know. Uh, good stuff in the five at five. You delivered there. Real nice. I think we Ooh. should go buy donuts and celebrate that. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Nothing. What do you have against donuts, by the way? 
You got all weird when I was like, you know what? Let's stop and get a donut for the kids after church. Yeah. What? Well, I just didn't think that you know, you're... we needed to consume them right away. Like, I, you, <laughs> you know? would, but you wouldn't even go into the donut shop. You waited I in the car. I had things to do. I had things to do. It was, was like kind of your thing. It was like a protest. <laughs> a silent protest. Informal protest. <laughs> The kids were delighted. It was a sit down. It was a sit down. We could have sat in that donut shop and consumed all 13. I'm sure you Me could have. Me and the kids divvied them up. Yeah. You know, well. that would have been interesting. Four each and then all of us staring at each other as the baker's dozen donut is sitting there in the box. What do we do? We can't divide it. Somebody should just have it. Guess what you, you don't know that I know right now. We have no do new donuts? There's danishes. Danishes? Eh. Fancy donuts. What do you have against Danish? It's a whole nother show. I'll leave you finally with a JFK quote. Maybe the most famous of all. So, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That's it. We're coming up next. We'll talk more about what? You don't like the JFK theme? I think every day we should I have a theme. I cannot oppose that. We do Martin Luther King tomorrow. Okay. You know? Okay. Adolf doesn't get a day. No. We don't do that no. angry speaking on well, the show. it's also in German. Yeah. Most of us won't yeah. be able to understand Well, it. some people may tune in and get the wrong idea. <laughs> Leave it here. You got the BFT. I don't know. Do you like the idea of uh, having historical uh, references or, you know, it doesn't even have to be historical. Like... We we could do JFK one day as the theme, and then uh, Martin Luther King another day as the theme, and then we could go into you know all sorts of uh, all sorts. We could be, it could even have a sports theme. But can you imagine like we do the five at five, and then and then all of a sudden it's MLK day. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. You know, and then we do, you know, number two item at the 5 of 5. And then another day, we go in a whole other direction because we run out of inspiring historical figures. And, like, you know, we have, like, a Steven Spielberg day. You know, then we have to do, like... And if you're lucky, you have parents like mine. I consider my mom my lucky charm. And when I was 12 years old, my father handed me a movie camera, the tool that allowed me to make sense of this world. And I am so grateful to him for that. And I am grateful that he's here at Harvard, sitting right down there. You know, could we do that? Could we get away with it? And eventually we would, we would run out of entertainment figures and we'd go into sports. And then we'd get stuck going like, who do we have today? You know, we got uh, we got Damian Lillard at Weber State giving a commencement speech. You know, like I I think we're onto something here. I think we could do this. I don't know if we could do it every day, but you know, can you imagine like Damian Lillard day? Me, um, talking to me, keeping my spirits up. Um, when I had surgery, you know, the team was out of town and he picked me up from the hospital. Um, Joel Bass, I spent a lot of time with him in therapy, and, you know, it was at a time where... Okay, not as inspiring, but still, still would be really good. I think, like, on bad days, we could do, like, the Neil Olshay day. We can, like, you know, <laughs> turn it around. That's right. You know, it's, like not, if, it's our plan. 
Yeah. That's like, why we don't give it to 29 other teams. Like the Blazers do a bad trade or something. It's Neil O'Shea Day. You know, the Ducks lose a game or something. It's, uh, oh. Mar- or uh, Willie Taggart Day. You know, something like that. Oh, yeah. You know, something, you know, you can turn around. So it doesn't have to be all inspirational. It can be uh, yeah. negative. I, I like that. It just just themes in general. Yeah. Like, you know, but Willie Taggart would basically, you know, be like, hey, you know, the the Ducks uh, the Ducks are uh, need a big win this week. Buckle up. Because it's going to be fun. We're going to get out there. We're going to go, like I said, recruit the best of the best. Recruit the best of the best on uh, on that day. Um, you know, I keep thinking, like, it was interesting to see Willie Taggart almost end up on Deion Sanders' coaching staff earlier this this year. And I think a lot of people were looking at him going, okay, what's going to happen here? He ended up as a running backs coach with the Baltimore Ravens. He's still in the game. I I think Willie Taggart could have been successful. I think he's a really good recruiter. I think he had the potential to be successful. I think he was in a hurry. That was his problem. And I think, too, when he took the job at Oregon, I think down deep, if he if we had him under oath, I think he knew that he was it was a stepping stone for him. And I think all along he was thinking, how do I get back to Florida from the minute he took the job? I mean, he he barely moved his family to the state of Oregon. Think about that. You know, his kids stayed enrolled uh, back in Florida in school. He didn't bring the whole family with him. There was, uh, you know, from from go, I think there was a lack of trust from the fan base when it came to Taggart. And I think he alleviated some of it with the way they played and how successful Justin Herbert was. But think about the fact that he was the head football coach at three different schools, South Florida, Oregon and Florida State within a calendar year, okay? So within a one-year period, he was a head coach at three different schools. Not a calendar year, but a 365-day period. He had three different jobs. And I don't think people viewed him as he wasn't invested in being in Eugene. I think had he been invested in the way that, you know, um, Dan Lanning or Mario Cristobal at least showed to some extent, I think people would have been more welcoming to him. I think people would have believed that he was about being at Oregon. But I think it was he was in a hurry. From the minute he got to Oregon, it just felt like he was in a hurry to win a few games and then get somewhere else. And the minute that Florida State job opened up, we all knew what was happening. Like, you know, it went back to here was a guy who was saying, make no excuses, you know, uh, you know do something. Uh, it, and then as soon as he had problems with the strength and conditioning coach, he made excuses. And in the end, you know, he was being asked, you know, are you are you interviewing for this other job? Came a tweet. I want to I want to tweet about the Vegas Bowl. I excited our guys are, but I'm afraid to get interpreted some weird way. But that's the world we live in now. You got to deal with it. Yeah, afraid it would be interpreted like like you wanted to leave. Like, that was the weirdest thing ever. Steven, I don't know where you were at that time, but I remember on the show we were so tuned into what is Willie Taggart going to do, and not in a way where, like, he hadn't won a lot. Like, he had a seven-win season, and it was just like, hey, are you going to leave, and you were the guy that was brought in to kind of salvage this thing. Are you going to just – are you stepping stone and out of here? And he insisted – you know, it was all, it was everybody else that was the problem. This is the world we live in. I can't even tweet. 
That's the same thing I got two, three days ago. Nothing's changed. Still, nothing's changed. The answers I gave you guys then is the same answer. Nothing had changed. He hadn't formally taken the job at Florida State, but it was the worst-kept secret that he was flying around the country. He was meeting with Florida State. He was using the, the University of Oregon plane to go interview for another job. It was, yeah. There's no decision to be made. <laughs> what are we talking about? You know, I'm, I'm clear and talking to our our, play, our recruits and, and our players, and um, I ain't going to make it no bigger than what it is. I kind of wonder, you look at Chip Kelly's departure out of Oregon, goes to the NFL, had a little bit of success, but uh, a lot of struggle for Chip Kelly in the NFL. Uh, you look at Willie Taggart's departure, definitely struggle in the wake of Oregon. He goes 7-5 and five at Oregon. He goes 5-7 and seven in year one at Florida State. He goes 4-5 and five in year two. They fire him. He ends up at Florida Atlantic where he goes 5-4, five 5-7, and 5-7. Five and seven, five and seven. Okay, so in the wake of the University of Oregon, Willie Taggart goes 24-30 and 30 between Florida State and Florida Atlantic. Now he is the running backs coach of the Baltimore Ravens. Okay, file that away. You now look at Mario Cristobal at the University of Oregon, and you say to yourself, okay, now you've got Chip Kelly as perspective, didn't make it. You've got Willie Taggart. Didn't make it. Now you look at Mario Cristobal's coaching career at Oregon, and you go, "Wow, you know, goes nine and four in his first full season, twelve and two in the second season. Pandemic shortened year. He gets to the Fiesta Bowl anyway, wins a conference championship, and then he goes ten and three and goes to the Alamo Bowl. A lot of success, thirty-five and thirteen." Multiple conference championships in his time. But did he did he heed the lesson of Chip Kelly and Willie Taggart? Nope, nope, nope. He did what everybody else does. He left for Miami. I don't blame him for that. I And I hold it less against him than I do against Willie Taggart because at least he stayed at Oregon for four full seasons, five years, six years overall, one as an assistant. And he's going home. I also think Cristobal didn't do the whole, you know. I came to tweet. I want to. I want to tweet about the Vegas Bowl. I excited our guys are, but I'm afraid to get interpreted some weird way. But it's the world we live in now. You got to deal just, with it. I laugh at that when I hear it now, because I think you know he was, uh, you know, some weird way. Remember what Mario Cristobal did at the end of his tenure at Oregon? He came on the show. He said, I have gratitude. I'm uh, I'm just happy that, uh, you know, I got an opportunity to uh, to coach at Oregon. And then he goes off into the sunset and, and you know, goes five and seven at Miami. He still might get fired. Isn't that kind of the difference is, like, the vibes? Like you even said, it was the worst-kept secret that Taggart was leaving. But Crystal Ball, you felt like there was still a chance he may turn yeah. down the Miami job and come back to Oregon, so – when he did go, it wasn't like he was full blown lying about it. Where now with Dan Lanning, yeah. it's the same thing. Like, you know, he's bringing his family around. He seems really invested with the program, so it doesn't seem like he's going to leave. You know, and I think Oregon fans love that because for so long, you know, with the Bellotti and Chip Kelly, you know, they had the same assistant coaches. They loved the, you know, the continuity. So I think Lanning right now is doing it perfect. And who knows if he's going to stay or not? It seems like he really likes it there down in Eugene. 
but he's playing it really well, and he's playing to the fans, and it's working out really well with the recruiting and all that. You know, it seems like right now Dan Lanning's got it, uh, got it going good in Eugene yeah. as long as he can coach. And with still a question, can he coach the X's and O's good enough to win on that on that level? We don't know that, but recruiting wise, off the field, seems like he's doing a really good job. Yeah, you know, and I think Landing, he doesn't have the the perspective that we all have. He did He wasn't here to see Chip Kelly leave and struggle into the NFL. He wasn't here to see Mark Helfrich take over the program, get to a national title game, and then really struggle and get fired. He wasn't here to see Willie Taggart and hear that act. And again, part of the problem with Taggart was he was not even here a year when he was already interviewing to go somewhere else. All right, people here are going to have a problem with that because they're going to look at it and go, hey, gave you an opportunity. You were at South Florida. You had a chance to come to Oregon. You don't even stay a year, and you're already on, you know, and you're lying on your way out the door. Mario Cristobal came and then spent four straight seasons, and you could argue he left the program better off than he found it, given that he took it over from Taggart, right? You know, he won nine, 12, and 10 games in his three full seasons after that. So he left the program better off than he found it. And Dan Lanning doesn't have all that perspective, though. But I want to go back to something happened with Cristobal in 2020. It was a year before he left. This is before he went 10-3 and at Oregon. He Auburn's job opened up, and there was all these rumors that were circulating about would Cristobal be a candidate, all this stuff. And Mario Cristobal got in front of it. Listen to this interview or this comment he made. In December of 2020, this is, you know, he stayed for another year at Oregon before leaving for Miami, but there was all this speculation about Auburn. I haven't gone through it quite yet, at least not since I've been over here, so I couldn't tell you. I know that we have an awesome thing going. We've got an unbelievable class going, and I think that when people speculate and start putting rumors out there, a lot of times people try to take that and get it to fit their narrative, which is try to affect recruiting class at Oregon, try to spin a story, okay? And uh, like I said earlier, like I said right now, and like I'll say tomorrow, I've been honest with you. I'll continue being honest with you. Things are being worked out, and I have full trust in the administration here that things are going to be worked out and that I'll be coaching here. So that's where it's at. And he got an extension from Oregon. Different vibe, right? You talk about the vibe. What do you hear there, Stephen? Yeah, sounds like a guy that actually truly enjoys it at Oregon and, you know, had a real debate on, like, you know, I want to stay here or am I going to leave? It really doesn't know, but I, I like it here at Oregon. We got something going uh, that's really, really doing a good job where you hear Taggart and it's just defensive, right? Like he's on the defense the entire time, which it doesn't yeah. sound good. And then Dan, you know, and, and what I liked about Cristobal, too, is like he says, I have confidence it's being worked out here. I think he's being honest there. He's saying they're going to take care of me, which they did. And then the Miami job opens up, you know, he, you know, whether he wanted to go home and coach in front of his mother or be back alongside his brother or get the cousins together with his kids, you know, like I, I don't begrudge him for that. But I appreciate the way at least that it went down. Remember now, there was a similarity. It was just last November in, you know, this is like week 10 of the Pac-12 season that Auburn fires its head coach. And there's an immediately a report out of SEC country that says Dan Lanning has been contacted about the Auburn job. Remember, I reached out to Lanning that night. 
He gave me a comment basically shooting down the rumor that he was talking to Auburn, but it, it just sort of triggered everybody who had been through Willie Taggart and Mario Cristobal and was fearing, I think people in the state of Oregon, fearing that you're getting used again by another coach. I will never forget how Dan Lanning addressed this. This is November the 8th of 2022. Yeah, uh First off, I'll say, when, you know, things like this are going to come up when you have team success and when you do your job and things go the way, you know, they're supposed to go. That's credit really to our team. That being said, I think there's a, a little bit of a problem in society today with people looking for what's next and where where there's an opportunity. And the reality is, you know, the grass is not always greener. In fact, the grass is damn green in Eugene, right? And I want to be here in Eugene for as long as Eugene will have me. This place has everything that I could possibly ever want, uh, my family could ever want. I've got an 11-year-old that's lived in eight states. The last thing I ever want to do is leave, right? So I, I want to enjoy this opportunity here. It's been a phenomenal place for us. Um, and when you talk about things that align, things that, that will match your vision for what you're looking for as a head coach, you know, Oregon checks every box for me, right? So when other people, I, th I think history maybe shows that it's this is a great place to be and not a great place to leave. I want to be here. And uh Hopefully that's the last time I have to really address it. But the reality is this is a destination, not just for me, but for elite players. And why is it a destination? Because great administration, great fans, um, great support. Um, and it's a good reason to be here and why we're having success that we're having. I think it's really interesting to hear him talk there. It almost sounds like he has done the homework and he has talked with people who have watched Chip Kelly, Willie Taggart, Mario Cristobal. Hell, I'll even throw Mark Helfrich in there. It, the last four coaches, his four predecessors, it didn't go all that well in one form or fashion after they leave. I'm not saying Dan Lanning should stay at Oregon forever, but given that he points out that his oldest kid has lived in 11 states, it has you pumping the brakes if you're Dan Lanning or his wife Sophia. Like, you're you're pumping the brakes on that. And you're going, hey, you know, we got to pay attention here. We don't need to dictate our lives on history. But, you know, since we're on JFK, you know, like, you pay attention to your history. You learn from it. Leave it here. Good show today. Grab a podcast wherever you get a podcast. We started uh, the show by talking about conspiracy theories. And uh, University of Oregon Athletic Director Rob Mullins, who has been fairly quiet in the last uh, six or eight months, uh, broke that silence with an interview he did with me this morning via telephone, and uh, we spoke of this interview uh, on the show. Uh, but if you want to read all of what Mullen said, you can read it at johnconzano.com. Uh, look, I'll, I'll tell you this. I felt like, you know, I, the conversation I had with Rob Mullins, I'm just going to let you in on a little bit, and I don't think he'd mind me sharing this with you. Part of the conversation centered around that very silence. And, you know, he says to me, look, I read what you write. He's apparently a subscriber. And he says, if you were off base, I would have reached out sooner, which I appreciate. Like for me, and I told him this, and I want you to know this as a listener of this show and a reader of mine, I want you to know that what my objective here in reporting anything on this show whether it pertains to Oregon State or Oregon or Portland State, University of Portland, Winterhawks, Timbers, Thorns, Pac-12 Conference, my family, uh, politics at City Hall, um, you know, laws in the state of Oregon, 
my goal is always the same. It's always sunshine. It's always to be as accurate and as sourced as I possibly can be. I think a, an inherent advantage I have in being here for the length of time I've been, been here in the position I'm in is that I'm sourced, it, that I can get to a number of people very quickly if I need to, and that these sources trust me. And building that rapport does not happen in a week or a year or two years or five years. It happens over 20 years of being somewhere, and in some cases, relationships that go beyond that. And um, the conversation I had with Mullins really did center around that, where I said to him, look, like, if am I right on this stuff? Have How has my reporting been in his circle? And he's saying, you have the right sources you are spot on. I'm not doing a cartwheel after I hear that. I'm more or less nodding my head going, okay. Um, and I said to him, look, if, if I'm ever in left field on any of this stuff that involves Oregon, Oregon's ecosystem, whatnot, pick up the phone, let me know. I want to have that conversation. And I don't mean do you agree with everything I write, especially if it's opinionated. That's not at all what I'm saying, because I don't expect anybody to agree with everything I think or say. If you do, you're crazy. Like, we cannot possibly think the same. I don't want us to think the same. I want us to have some natural disagreement. Uh, I get better because of it. You get better because of it. But I'm talking about the facts. You cannot distort the facts. A lot of people in today's world want to change the facts to fit what? Their narrative. Uh, you know, Big 12 country people who really are worried about the Big 12 evaporating in this new world of college athletics for some reason have they want to change the facts they want to distort the facts and the perception to to their benefit uh, I don't really understand that but I kind of just go hey anything that I'm told that comes out of that footprint I need to check and double check same for the Pac-12 stuff there are some Pac-12 people that badly want the Pac-12 to thrive and be alive and be better off without UCLA and USC. That's not possibly happening. This conference is not going to be better without USC and UCLA in it. That's just not a fact. There were mistakes that were made. Letting USC in particular get away is a massive sin by the Pac-12 and, and needs to be addressed as such and cannot repeat itself. You cannot be asleep at the wheel and let you had one job. If you're George Klyovkov, do not let USC get out of the way. The fact that USC got away and took UCLA with them, um, and that is how it went down. UCLA was not leaving on their own. That That is a big mistake and needs to be in the loss column on George Klyovkov's tenure. That said, I don't expect him to like fold up the tent and run away. you got to punch back. And if they're going to punch back with a meteorite steal that keeps the 10 remaining members together, possibly adds San Diego State and SMU. Um, you know, it's quite it, that's a punch back. And you make it's not a band-aid, it's a punch. So I, I like that they're attempting to throw punches back. But I'm here not for uh, some narrative that is going to make you feel warm and cozy like a pair of slippers. That's not my job. I'm here to tell you what is actually going on, to try to make sense of it and to try to talk about what I think would happen with the Pac-12, with the Blazers, with the Ducks, with the Beavers. I'm not going to lie to you and say Oregon's going to go undefeated, but I'll tell you, I look at their schedule and I go, gosh, if the defense if the defense is as good as the offense, who's beating Oregon? 
I do the same thing at Oregon State. You know, if does Jonathan Smith really have a quarterback? If so, look out. They could be in Vegas playing for all the marbles at the end of the season. Um, I'm not here to make you feel good about it because if the defense at Oregon isn't good, that's a 9-3 and or 10-2 and team. And if the quarterback's not there, Oregon State's in the same boat. We're back tomorrow with another great show. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.